When it comes to character in general, I, I'm not, I don't think any of us are nice. I just don't know anyone nice. Not really. Not anyone I know well. I don't think I'm nice. I, I think we're all completely in denial about our in characters. I don't think it's, it would be possible for any of us to describe ourselves like accurately in the way that other people see us. So that's always at the back of my mind when I'm thinking of character. Oh, oh nice tux. Thank you. Wow, it's a rental, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Where, where are we going, Felix? You think you'll go home? Honestly? Home doesn't mean the same for me as it does for you, Felix. Well, why don't you come home with me? Come to Saltburn. Hello, welcome to the extra credits of Emerald Fennell's Saltburn. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. So I am really excited to talk about Fennell, Promising Young Woman, Saltburn, the reaction, our reaction. We both like this director and like these yeah. movies quite a bit, especially Saltburn. But I wanted to take a second and just bring up the fact that we <laughs> just podcasted about Zodiac and the social network <laughs> in the past week. We're having like yeah. a real fun, busy week, but I'm like equally sad and excited for people to be able to like listen to those episodes because I feel like we won't be able to talk about those movies for a long time because we yeah. really did massive episodes on those. Wait, why are you sad? Because they're some of my favorite movies and I feel like it was weird finishing the social network one in particular because I was like, was that one of our best podcasts? <laughs> I think that was one of my favorite podcasts that we have ever done. It was a like, really fun conversation. So fun. Um, I, I just obviously like love it as a character study. Mm -hmm. It's such an amazing movie. But I think, uh, yeah, I guess the sadness that you're locating is like, I feel sad that like it, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> because like, I mean, Fincher's going to come back with another yeah. movie. We're going to be able to talk about him again in his filmography, but we just love those films so much. Yeah. Well, it's more so because I think like, you know, as we've started a Patreon and we've been going back into episodes uh, yeah. or back into movies to do episodes that are, are like really heavy hitters. Yeah. Those are things that we thought like we would put off for like a long time, right? We're like, yeah. oh, well, we'll do Zodiac and like, five years if we're still podcasting, yeah. you know? When, when we've become true cinephiles and we're like <laughs> actually ready to talk about these great American epics. Yeah, but <laughs> I will have everyone know that I am going to gift Trey uh, I am not Paul Avery button. I would love an I'm not Paul Avery button. That would be sick. I want like, fuck you, flip-flops. Give me some Adidas flip-flops. That would be... I feel like have those been made? That's a great Halloween costume. Maybe we yeah. both dress up as Eisenberg next year. Like the, instead of the Adidas, it just is like, fuck, fuck you, you on flip each flops. one. Yeah. That'd be sick. Uh, I feel also really stressed and excited for what we have this week after Fennel, which is Alien, <laughs> which is nuts to say. That's like my favorite movie of all time. We're doing a Ridley Scott miniseries on the Patreon. And we're going to be covering Alien and Blade Runner, uh, which is really, again, it's going to be a good time, but it's just this weird like just this kind of melancholy that's already hitting me because we're not gonna be able to talk about those movies for a long time again. Well, Trey is particularly stressed about the alien podcast because that is his favorite movie of all time. Like you just said, I don't <laughs> so know how to prepare, like, prepare for that one. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not perfect, it's not good. Yeah. That's how um, I feel. I don't know. I, and I have consistently told him that it's fine. We will definitely do alien again yeah. and alien adjacent content. Yes. For a, 
forever. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, so we're also going to be covering some 2023 releases in December and yeah. January, which I am excited for. I'm because, very excited too. I mean, we're talking about Saltburn today, and this is obviously a movie in theaters right now, but it's been a minute since we've talked about a really a great movie that we've loved in theaters, but we've seen a lot of great films lately that we haven't talked about on the podcast. I just saw Anatomy of the Fall for a second time, and I'd like to say confidently now that that is the best film of the year to me. It's your top? So far. It's not it's one. not my number 1. It's definitely in my top like 5, five okay. maybe. All right. I I I have to like, you know, sort it out for myself, make my own letterbox list. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I said it right. Your ranking. Yeah. <laughs> um but before we do our like final, you know, episode of the year, mm-hmm. but I don't yeah, I feel like I loved Bo is Afraid. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I love Bo is Afraid, too. And I was a big fan of Asteroid City. I mean, there's a lot of great films this year. We also haven't seen some that are coming out, like May, December, that I'm really excited for, or Boy yeah. and Haran. Like, I'm really excited for some of these uh, movies that we haven't had access to early screeners yet. Also, we got a few messages to talk about The Holdovers, which I thought was a pretty good movie. Um, I think I was a little bit more mixed on it than most seem to be. So maybe we can include that conversation, like a yeah. short conversation on that, on like Payne's newest film sometime soon. Another film uh, that cracked my personal top 10 of 2023, which I'm not sure I've actually said this to you because we try not to talk about the movies that we're going to pot about until we're potting on them, is Saltburn, which is oh, okay. why I'm excited to talk about Saltburn nice. today. This movie did just like crack my top 10. Somehow I feel like contrarian saying that. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> uh, like I feel like, you know, I've only seen the movie once and we've sat with it for a few weeks now and we haven't recorded an episode on this movie because we've been really busy with the podcast and other episodes and also just our main jobs, but also because the reaction to Fennell's newest work was like kind of expectedly, but also unnecessarily, I think, in my opinion, pretty divisive. Yeah. So like strangely heightened in yeah. terms of like criticism. Like we'll talk about it today, but yeah, yeah. Uh it is it's yeah, it's funny that you're like, am I <laughs> am I making a statement by saying I, I like, like this, this movie? movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like because, I thought it was like not complicated and good. Like yeah. I don't yeah, it was weird. Yeah. And people are just being like so extra uh, about their criticism. And it's totally fine. Like at listeners, you know, critics, if you yeah. don't like a movie cool but like the way that it's been talked about is that it's about nothing and it's like shocking uh it's like going out of its way to shock and like okay like it's just like so like tired you know it like feels petty yeah it just like feels like uh a little grimy like it's like don't you like hear yourself like kind of like shouting this and everyone is like saying it very loudly and and it feels so strange because it's we just talked about the killer Fincher's and, movie, yeah. Yeah, and the killer like feels just as straightforward as Saltburn. Like I'm not like, whoa, these are amazing, you know, deep dives, cutting, like yeah. um I just like was like, yeah, that was a good movie. I had a really fun time watching that movie. Mhm. It was very like straightforward with its audience in terms of what it was about. And I honestly haven't heard people talk about what Saltburn is about. Yeah. So or they're saying that they are talking about what it is about. And the reason why like the podcast or the criticism seems kind of lackluster is because the the person who is writing or podcasting feels that the movie isn't about anything. Yeah. And it's which like, is fascinating. It, it's just strange because like, 
we don't, I haven't really heard that for any other movie this year. Like even like something, maybe Bo is afraid. Maybe Bo is afraid. Yeah. But, it, but people still give it a little bit more like it's Ari Aster. Yeah. So like, like credit. Right. Maybe there's some subtext. It's just here. so <laughs> condescending to say a movie is about nothing. Obviously yeah. it, it like has something on its mind. I haven't again, like heard specifically like how I, when I walked out of the theater, I was like, Oh, this is obviously what it's about. Um, that was like a really interesting, like, timely kind of way to portray it in this like talented Mr. Ripley mm-hmm. heightened um like really stylish funny <laughs> movie yeah but fun it, vibes but the reason I bring up the killer is because like this is this is like not me criticizing the killer this is just me saying like there were so many men on Twitter and like critics being like oh but like yes. Here's XYZ. Here are all the details of like the killer, Michael Fassbender, an obsession. And like, here's it's an what it's about. And like, about I Fincher. feel seen. And I was yeah. like, and, and it's oh, about that's, me. whatever, that's fine. I'm yeah. not criticizing. I'm just saying that it's like hilarious that people went so far to like look into the details of the killer, which I genuinely could understand if someone said, like, the killer's not about a lot, yeah. you know, because I genuinely think it's not about a lot. And that's something that it's like funnily doing. It's like kind of parodying with. the genre much like yeah. Saltburn. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like it's like playing with this idea of wearing its message, like very straightforward uh-huh. um, on its sleeve. Uh-huh. And that, and that like is something that the killer and Saltburn both have in common. So like to see just kind of the very like opposite reactions to that. And obviously like the gender of the filmmaker, like coming into that, that's not even like me trying to make a statement about like no, we'll people criticizing like women, but, yeah. uh, but it's just like so obvious in the like language that's being used to, to, to talk about this film. So anyway, I, I just wanted to bring that up. Cause it's just like, so honestly, like, yeah. Funny. It's like, don't people like hear themselves? I guess not. Yeah, I guess not. I don't know. I feel like the killer is a great example because if that movie had a, an extreme reaction, extreme negative reaction to it, I would have been a bit frustrated as a fan of that film because I thought the killer was really easy to enjoy. Yeah. Much like Saltburn. And I think for Saltburn, those who are open minded and aren't going into this film unfairly trying to over-intellectualize the text or psychologize the filmmaker, I think you'll have like a fairly uncomplicated fun time yeah. at the movies. Like actually a, a good time. I think there's enough ideas too. Like I don't I don't think that this movie is like devoid of ideas. I think there's enough ideas for this film to be pretty interesting. In fact, yeah. I think I even liked it a little bit more than you because I bought into like what it was saying. Maybe just a bit more than you did. No, no, I think... I think you? that it's like very, I, very interesting to talk about in terms okay. of like the comment that it's making on class, which is actually different than its predecessors, like talented Mr. Ripley. Yes, um, I agree. It's not like derivative at all. And so, well, it's, it's derivative in as far as like parroting the genre, like it is like playing with a familiar genre purposely. It almost is like playing with this idea that the audience thinks they know where they're going. Yeah. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Like, yeah, yes. It's playing on the idea of like, well, can we drop spoilers? Should we say? I feel like, yeah, let's say spoiler warning for the rest of this episode. Again, I recommend everybody go see Saltburn and maybe even check out Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman again if you haven't seen it in a few years, because we're going to be getting into Emerald Fennell, Promising Young Woman and Saltburn in detail today. Yes. Um. Okay. So I think the idea of like him, you know, killing the family Oliver, yeah. is not the turn of the movie. Right. And everyone keeps talking about that. Like right. she was trying to shock us and like this was supposed to be the turn, but this has already been done. Like that's not the turn of the movie. So yeah. Um. in that sense, I think you're right that it's like kind of playing with 
our expectations of a talented Mr. Ripley of like its predecessors. Yeah. When Tom um, Ripley yeah. kills, uh, I'm forgetting uh, Jude Law's character's name on the boat. And you're like, wow, Dickie, he, Dickie, he really just did that. God, what right? a good scene. But when Oliver kills Felix and his family, like kind of indirectly and sometimes directly, like with Rosamund Pike's character, mm-hmm. which we will get to, uh, I wasn't surprised about that part because the twist was that Oliver is a part of the middle class. And like yeah. that, we're, we're going to get into all of that. I don't want to step on it just yet because I do want to talk more about Fennell, more about Promising Young Woman, more about their reaction to her work okay. and her career, maybe Let's her as an artist, which I think is fascinating because I am, I've been really caught off guard by reading and listening to critics and audiences bash Fennell and Saltburn. I'm like, mm-hmm. I know we've already brought it up and we've touched on it, but I really want to get into it today because I'm genuinely confused about why professionals and media are spending like 2000 word essays or two hour podcasts trying to get people like listeners or readers to think lesser of this filmmaker who's only made two movies. Yeah. Uh, good movies because I think Fennell has like a very straightforward goal as this kind of like zeitgeist provocative filmmaker. And I think Fincher's a great a comp. Like I think she's trying to do, she's trying to play in that Fincher genre of like, yeah. of playing in the mainstream, using maybe B plots to make a sort yeah. of a movies mm-hmm. to get people to watch a popcorn film and then kind of shake the audience a little bit and get them to reflect. And I think in a fun way, in a fun time, yeah. with like cool needle drops and like <laughs> good cinematography. And I'm like, sick, give me more of these directors. Isn't this like what we want? So I don't know. I feel weird saying that this episode today might be complicated, but apparently I know it's it hilarious. Is. Imagine because like we we planned to do this right after we saw it, but we just got like so yeah, we got busy. But yeah. it's just so funny that like now we, we were just going to be like, oh, yeah, uncomplicatedly like liked it like good movie fun time at the movies. Mm-hmm. And now like after like waiting, you know, a week or whatever it's been. Yeah, it's just like piling up of like adjective after after adjective totally like just like cringe like it's just so transparent um yeah Yeah. in fact i actually like wrote down like like almost 40 adjectives that were used that were all like (laughs) very woman directed from critics like in major outlets some blogs but mostly major outlets and i pulled some from podcasts too i'm not gonna quote anybody i'm not yeah. dragging anyone today i'm not interested in that not like, here to do that i want to hear the adjectives i mean it's pretty it's intense like it's it's kind of hard to deny uh the kind of double standard that's going on that's very clear um so again i'm hoping today we can clear up a bit of the extreme reactions to this movie maybe some listeners don't know what the hell we're talking about because they're not like as plugged in as we have to be for this sure. job um but our goal today is hopefully to find some nuance in the discourse around saltburn and Fennell and like maybe how successful or unsuccessful that film was in its intentions or motivations. And also maybe like what we personally thought did or didn't work. Because I, I do think there are obvious like things to appreciate. I really like this movie a lot, mm-hmm. if not love it in certain moments. And then I think there are some understandable like critiques yeah. on the film. And I think a lot of those sure. good faith criticisms that we can share today have been unfortunately like outweighed by this very strong, I think I used the word earlier, like petty, reaction i think yeah. petty is the best word i can come to mind that isn't like soaked in misogyny it just feels like people are very angry at emerald Fennell in this movie and i can't i can't exactly pinpoint why and that's gonna be a little bit one of my that's gonna be one of my goals today and like in this conversation is for us to try to maybe focus in on like an, an example for why that is because i think a lot of people are spending time trying to 
overanalyze her, like her life, her career, her work. Maybe it's because she's like a contemporary, like for critics, like commenting on this like movie going middle class identity through two films now. And she's now in Saltburn portraying like this older millennial 35 and up Mm -hmm. like experience of this college era of the mid 2000s that is kind of purposely, like we said, parodying like the trends of that era in really funny ways. And so maybe it's cringe to watch this movie on screen for a lot of like people people who grew up during this time. Yeah, a reaction, like feeling a little bit more connected in their their own timeline to the movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, But maybe I'm just like trying to identify why there's such a strong reaction. I'm overreading it. I'm just, I don't know. And so that's what I'm hoping to figure out today. And I do think it's, you know, even more complicated reaction than that. And we'll get to those complicated parts. Uh, So... I, I, can I give you my theory right now, at least, why I think the movie industry is not reacting to this movie very well? Yeah. I think right now we're in a very odd transition stage from the superhero industrial complex mm-hmm. to like big budget 80s like escapist products. And I think that there is this, and that's been, I think, well written about right now, but I, I do, I just wanted to bring it up because I think there is this like resurgence of this action epic like man versus the world or Americans versus the world epics, like this very kind of 80s landscape of movies because we have things like Top Gun Maverick popping off, Mission Impossible 11. I don't know. What is it? I think <laughs> I it's number know. seven. We have John Wick 4, Avatar 2, all good movies. And then, but but again, like kind of ultimately escapist films with like really cool visuals in some cases mm-hmm. are great you know, scenes or, uh, you know, good performances, I guess. And now you have toy and video game companies like trying to make, you know, the Marvel and Disney monopoly go away and trying to take it over with Mario and Barbie, which are two movies that made a billion plus this year. And so I think there's this very real... Yeah, we talked about the Mattel like empire it's coming. building quietly on yeah. our Barbie pod. And we loved Barbie, but it's like, yeah. It's it's happening, especially with every new bad Marvel press or uh, you know, update or bad movie. Um, but yeah, there's this very real transition for blockbusters right now, and everyone seems to like those films quite a bit, like by box office metrics and critical reception alike. But just like also anecdotally, letter, letterbox numbers seem to like have some of those movies like higher than Saltburn, for example. So it seems like this transition to going back to this 80s escapism is coming back again, which is fun because we are having like a su- superhero fatigue moment that I think you know we, we're, we're both sharing, too, mm-hmm. even though we have loved Marvel over the years. Yeah. It, it's happening. And again, this is like all speculation, but I think some people have written about it well. But like from my observations this escapist movie obsession is like maybe a symptom of like late pandemic anxiety and this like need to escape from reality and like not think about the world pre 2022, which is all fine to a certain extent. Um, but what ha- what has surprised me, the reason I'm bringing this up is because in 2023, we're getting this love for these like new action adventure epics, escapist films, while also getting like very weird negative reactions to low to mid budget non-conventional works like Saltburn being disregarded by critics or reduced by critics or like random film commentators like us. There's kind of this like um, almost hate wave to low to mid budget movies that's going Mm -hmm. on that I think is fascinating. And then you have like this major consequence of if you're a critic and you hate on a movie that is trying to attempt to do something different in this movie landscape. If you hate on a film like that, you're maybe pressuring an audience to not go see that film like Bo is Afraid lost so much money for A24 yeah. this year because critics came out and were like, this movie is kind of stupid mm. and not really about anything important. 
And I thought that was a real interesting reduction for the same film critics who like thought Top Gun Maverick was the best movie in years. <laughs> right. Yeah. And for it's like a movie can, not about anything purposely. Yeah. And like you can like Top Gun. Like that's not yeah, what we're course. talking about. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, it, it's like the like what kind of movies do we want to see in theaters? And yeah. it's just like so strange to like have that take of like we talked about that last year too. like Avatar and Top Gun were like major hitters mm-hmm. and it was really sad to see like such criticism towards Bo is afraid. Right. And I mean, it sort of happened with Peel's Nope too last yeah. year, kind of low key because so many people put that movie on their top 10 list last year, but that movie almost didn't make its budget back at one point. And then Eggers, the Northman was similar and Chazelle's Babylon, obviously, or Gina Prince Bythewood's the woman King. Maybe those budgets are like higher than mid budgets, obviously. And they're too big for comparison to a Bo is afraid or Saltburn. But these are all movies that did like poorly financially for the most part and, and poorly critically in some cases. And some of those movies even tanked after marketing and theater costs are taken into account. And now I think like, Again, we have another Bo is Afraid situation with Saltburn. And I'm just like, really? Like what you were just saying, I'm confused about what critics specifically want from movies. Because a lot of critics do create demand for these films by like kind of crafting Rotten Tomato scores. And that's what a lot of normal moviegoers use to mm-hmm. choose what films they want to see during the holidays. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like now that Trey and I, you know, like have a podcast, but like people who don't know even have a podcast, they'll... um they they know we like movies obviously yeah. and like that is like what i often hear people like talk about they'll be like have you seen this new movie like they've heard right. about it on instagram or wherever yeah and they usually tell me the rotten tomato score yeah or they'll like tell me like oh i like heard it wasn't good and like use kind of like a quote that has been recycled kind of like this movie like the um like I've, I've seen headlines over and over again of like this movie goes out of its way to shock you yeah okay like yeah. it's just you know what i mean it's like uh, you're right. Like, it's not that people can't have a take. That's cool. It's just like more so like, like what you're saying, kind of like the repetition, like playing within the like game of clicks. It like, yes, is sad. Yeah. yeah. No, it's depressing. Totally. And I think I'm not sure exactly what's happening. I think that there's a lot of critics now competing with maybe like TikTok film criticism, too. And like, that makes sense. Like try, people trying to keep their jobs and like that totally makes sense to me. But there feels like this ethically convenient, maybe commercially attractive movement to prop up big budget sensationalist movies with maybe IMAX visuals, which are good. And with hopefully quote unquote movie stars to return to get us back to an 80s celebrity wave. It feels like so that everybody is like financially pretty happy. Um, So it's weird for me to think that so many critics talk about wanting that back while also wanting movies to change and be different and like try to get something more transgressive in theaters Mm -hmm. for to kind of like just elevate the movie going experience and or just have like original stories. Well, hopefully. Yeah. And it seems like audiences want that too, but like, I don't know. We have, I'm grateful. We have weirdos like Emerald Fennell and Ari Aster or Wes Anderson, even just mm-hmm. like making these fantastically absurd movies in 2023 that all of them almost lost money this year. If, if, you know, some of them actually lost a ton of money. And I think Saltburn checks that box for me for, I think a film, I don't know the budget for it cause I couldn't find it online, but it's, it's probably going to make 15 to $20 million. And I'm assuming that's going to lose a, quite a bit of money. So I, I just don't get the landscape right now. It feels very contradictory to yeah. how I understand well, the purpose so of going boring. to movies now. Like, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just so boring to like hear. And like, cause we obviously consume a lot to prepare for podcasts. And like when you yeah. keep reading the same thing, it's like, 
it, it's just like, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to like attack anyone or be like, people are like copy pasting, but like, that's yeah. literally what it feels like reading things. It's like, okay, I'm reading like the same like sentiment kind of reworded over and over and over again. Like that's not a coincidence. And it, and it is just kind of like boring. It's like, I want to hear what people actually think about what the film is actually saying, not right. just saying it's about nothing, which is like just so dismissive. Well, it's also for Fennell. It's happened two movies in a row, right? With Promising Young Woman, it happened mm-hmm. in 2020. I think that was a difficult time. And we'll go back to that movie in a second. But I think I personally believe Emerald Fennell is two for two. Like I think her and her collaborators are so visually distinct from the average filmmaker. And I think they are all obviously thematically interested in capturing like a zeitgeisty contemporary problem. And I think some people can criticize that them to maybe want to profit off of those contemporary issues. But like, I think that's just the, the weird bind that a lot of filmmakers find themselves in when they want Mm -hmm. to talk about something in the moment. But I do think she tackles like these contemporary issues in entertaining ways, which is difficult to do. And only two features in three years for her and her team to do that. I'm just like really excited for their future. Yeah. I I think it's fascinating how filmmakers like Jordan Peele, for example, someone we love, someone we've covered deeply on this podcast has been called by a lot of famous critics, the next John Carpenter Mm -hmm. and Ari Aster being identified by Martin Scorsese as one of the next greats. Yeah. Both of those directors have only made three films that are all very good, if not great. And some of them we even would call masterpieces now. But I think Fennell, like, I don't see why she can't be included in that tier. She has such a strong sense of vision and the tone is very concentrated. And only after two films, I think she's entering that territory of that like pulpy provocateur, like a Fincher. Like yeah. a like a young Tarantino, which I know, especially me saying Tarantino's name, I think that's going to piss people off. But I, I don't see why that's crazy. No, like, yeah, that is what her style feels like. And you know what's so surprising is like people liked the menu last year. You know what I mean? I was going to bring up the menu too as something like, that wasn't provocative, that was fun. Yeah, but it was very straightforward in its message. Um, I, and it was I eat and the I rich, think, which so yeah. were like ten movies last year. Exactly. Yeah. And I and I actually don't think that. Uh, Saltburn is an eat the rich movie. No. And and I, people keep calling it that too. Nor is it a cautionary tale for the wealthy, which is wild. Which is wild. A, <laughs> which is a like a media thing. literacy yeah. problem. <laughs> like that's crazy. To, like <laughs> I couldn't believe that take. I saw that take from multiple people in this yeah, space. Yeah, which we're not. Obviously, we're not against eat the rich stories. But like I think that. But the, no, the, the cautionary tale for the wealthy. As oh, if, yeah. Yeah, that is wild to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like I just, I don't know. Her first two films have this like singular, unique vibe and vision that is like both bold and ambitious while still having like a dark sense of humor. And she's not selling out to streamers like other young filmmakers have to, unfortunately, and like sacrifice a part of their art or ideas. So I feel like people aren't giving her her due. Even though she won an Oscar, people still call that Oscar the pandemic Oscar. So I feel like she still doesn't like have her do. So mm-hmm. I'm excited for today's episode to talk about her work seriously and her career and, and, and not talk about Emerald Fennell in reductive ways. Cause I think that'd be really easy to, as someone ha- who has like had such a young career, like so many have called her success, like a fluke, even after the, mm-hmm. the second film, or like I said, that Oscar being like a pandemic Oscar. Yeah. I think there is so much inconsistent film criticism on her work right now. There's tons of double standards. There's like a lower margin of error, obviously. And people are, are expecting these like crazy high expectations from her movies too, which is, I I don't understand that part either because she's only made two movies in three years. And I feel like, you know, you brought it up earlier, but you can't help but think that misogyny 
has a bit. And I hate using that word because I know yeah, because it's, it feels like we're like, you know, making a grand statement it. about yeah. like how people are, you know, uh, being like sexist. And that's right. Genuinely, like I, I like. I mean, it's just like, yeah, obvious. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's like, it's, it's Hollywood. It's an, yeah, yeah, it's like, like a sexist <laughs> industry. Like, what the but fuck? But also, it's just interesting because like, so right now I'm writing a paper on um, like looking at women in horror movies and, okay. and yeah. how they're depicted and like uh, kind of like these ideas of like control images. Mm-hmm. And so a part of my like reading like the literature uh there was a study that was like focusing on how critics talk about um women music artists interesting and, yeah uh, similar there were like so many i, I was it was just so funny because i was like reading it this morning and we were about to do the Saltburn podcast and it was just like literally everything that we have seen in the headlines about emerald Fennell. like it was like you know people talking about her like personal relationships, uh-huh. like her family's um, wealth. Yeah, her yeah. family's wealth and like uh, her connections her, to the industry. Yeah, yeah. And, and like and then also you know talking about her in terms of like relationships and like it, it's just like literally like I, I, it's the music industry, but it's like similar in talking about like a, a woman uh, who is an artist mm-hmm. in the film industry. It's like just like like check for check right um as as you're like going through this and it's like it's not you know just with the with the film industry so it's like it feels like i i don't know i i always get like a little um not cringed but i just don't want to be like oh like okay Trey and Kelsey are making a statement. It's just like, yeah. no, it's just like so obvious that it's also not liberal coded or like progressive coded to be like Hollywood is sexist. I feel like that's a very uncomplicated thing to say. Sure. Like this is something that we've all Hollywood has systemic issues for over a century now. Like that's just been something that people viewed as fact. We have the data. Look yeah. at the filmmakers who get opportunities. It's representation. The filmmakers who people do not. who are working in the film industry. Right. Like it's especially the media too, which is not talked about enough. So we're going to talk about that today. Again, I have the adjectives. Uh, So in today's episode, we will not be lazily kind of tearing apart Emerald Fennell or her film. Instead, I think we're going to try to cover her career fairly. We're going to be starting with her work in the industry before directing. Then I'm hoping we could talk a bit about Promising Young Woman. I don't want to make the whole episode about that film because I would like to dedicate a future episode to that movie, uh, which I revisited again this past week. Good movie. That reaction, again, was very divisive in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's aged fine. And then we'll get to Saltburn, which I think... I I think, arguably, Saltburn has had more of a divisive reaction in some ways, which I, I think we could talk about. I think a lot of people are grouping the two films together. And it feels like a lot of the anger from 2020 is, like, resurfaced in 2023. Sure. Um, and so I'd like to respond to that criticism directly today on the show. Not unlike what we did last year with Gina Prince-Bythewood's Woman King. Mm-hmm. Or Olivia Wilde on Don't Worry Darling, mm-hmm. which was a even bigger deal in some ways. I think much like those films, there were valid film criticisms, especially for Don't Don't Worry Darling, which was a pretty good movie, but didn't totally work. But I think there was like obviously some condescending, let's say condescending language being tossed around major mm-hmm. outlets and audience reactions. Uh, and there was this kind of blend of microaggressions with like loaded language about don't worry, darling. That reminds me a lot of Saltburn being this. I've seen critics say that Saltburn is stupid. Yeah. Gross. Unexamined. Yeah. Idealist. A cold movie. Yeah. Which I think, you know, if you compare. Are these the adjectives? Those are just some. Okay. I'm giving everyone a taste <laughs> of what, what people were saying in their reviews. I think if you compared what those critics say to the other male filmmakers on their second movies and their, you know, those critics careers, I don't think it would be overreaching or overreading to say again that some of that 
anger feels a bit misogynistic. So that yeah. I think that's proof. I mean, that's just a touch of the proof that's coming. Um, and basically, I think it seems really cool right now to dislike Emerald Fennell. Yeah. And we're not going to do that today. Uh, we're going to try to be fair and really not just like actively dislike her work to get clickbait on our podcast, which would be obviously like very inauthentic. Uh, are you ready? I'm ready. Yeah. Okay, let's do this. I want to start off by talking about Emerald Fennell's uh, career, like kind of where, how she became a filmmaker. She grew up in London, went to private school, got an English degree at Oxford. Uh, she came from a very well-off family. Her mother is a uh, an author and her father works as a jewelry designer. And like I said, many critics have addressed Fennell's upper middle class background. Kelsey brought it up earlier too, as a way to kind of Many critics seem to bring it up not as a way to contextualize her like how we're doing right now, but as a way to reduce her work. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talk about uh, parent occupations of like almost all our filmmakers because I just yeah. always think it's so interesting. It is fascinating. And, you know, shout out teachers again, because usually uh, they have like filmmakers have a, a teacher parent. There's always a line to education. Or an author, you know. Yeah. Um. But yeah, but mostly critics have been talking about like her dad's jewelry um, business as a way to kind of like support or give evidence to this idea, which I think is a misreading of the movie, honestly, but, um, that to she's say pro wealthy that she's pro, yeah. <laughs> pro, pro wealth inequality. What a take. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Uh, what, what was the, are, are you going to talk about the, uh, criticism, uh, that is like, well, I know we already mentioned it a little bit, but are you going to talk about it yes. more in depth of like, uh, that this is a, this is a cautionary tale for wealthy people for wealthy kids to not help. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. This is why you don't help those in need. What? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Wild. All right, keep, keep going. Uh, yeah. I think, um, I do think like bringing up like Emerald Fennell's access to connections and wealth. Sure. It is in a vacuum yeah. is like so fair, but also again, like the way her background has been presented in critiques, I think has mostly been in bad faith considering, yeah. considering like many critics, and audiences who read those critics or listen to those critics, their favorite filmmakers, just like mine, are often products of nepotism because it's Hollywood mm -hmm. or products of like wealth inequality. So to me, kind of I my first thought is, yeah, and like when I hear Emerald Fennell comes from a rich family, I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking about all my other favorite filmmakers who are also from wealthy families. Mm -hmm. Like that's just these are artists, but also they are millionaires. Like a lot of them are working in this kind of oppressive industry to a certain extent. It's not just all art. It is a business. So that has been confusing. Uh, anyways, so Fennell didn't go straight to filmmaking. After college, she uh, said that she, the UK doesn't offer the same access to film school as they do in the US, and there are far fewer f female directors there than there were actresses. So she felt that acting was her most kind of likely opportunity to make it in film and television. Mm -hmm. And in a recent interview, she had this great quote about her childhood where she said, every woman in film or television growing up was in a house. And she became interested in that psychology of like domestic lives for women. And she said, because of that box that women were portrayed in as a kid, she didn't think there was much of a, a path for her in film and television outside of acting. So she applied that anxiety from her childhood onto her path to directing films that have like angst and self-awareness, which I thought was a really cool director origin story that many people haven't brought up with her that I just like randomly heard in an interview from 2020. I think it would be really cool to have her on our podcast to hear more about that. I would love to hear more about the origins of her career rather yeah. than just her movies. Because well, she's obviously very interested in like particular like themes like any yeah. filmmaker. But like I would be interested to hear more what she wants to go into the future because or what themes she wants to go even further into mm -hmm. in her in her future because I think that she'll do something like 
fun with them, like interesting with them. Yeah. And well, she loves genre. Yeah. Like she was going to do a superhero film at one point, but now she's thinking she might even go more into genre. I heard recently, which I think could mean like a horror film, huh. like a traditional horror film, okay. which I thought w- would be sick. I mean, I think that's would yeah. be perfect. I think that'd be a great lane for her, like a Robert Eggers or Ari Aster. Uh, but yeah, yeah a little elevated. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think she's already kind of started doing that. Um, but through the 2010s, uh, Emerald Fennell was a pretty prolific and impressive actor. I wasn't too familiar with her work until doing research, but she's probably best known for her work on The Crown, which I've only seen a few episodes of, which seems like a really well-made show. Kelsey, you, you've liked that show's past few seasons, at least. Yeah, I didn't watch the recent one. Mm-hmm. Um, it just came out, right? But she was... The she was a character that got apparently nominated for an Emmy. Camilla, yes, who is like the person not who's <laughs> not Princess Diana. <laughs> nice. Okay, people. I think I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, who's the prince? Who's <laughs> uh, Charles? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like why is it embarrassing that I don't know the? You know like, what's funny? British like ten percent of our like, listeners <laughs> are English. I don't know if they're going to give yeah. a shit about us not knowing yeah, the monarchy. Sorry. But like, I just like, yeah. I, I don't Prince. There's Prince Harry. Okay, sure. And Prince. Yeah, it's Prince Charles. You're right. I got who it. is like, my, I, I love the actor who plays uh, Prince Charles. So just a shout out. Oh, yeah. He's going to be in Luca Guanino's new movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Josh. So forgetting his last name, but he's yeah. great. Uh, Wow, so we just did a great job. That was an awful The Crown conversation. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> um, during that time on The Crown, though, she also put her English degree to work from Oxford, where she wrote a few children's horror novels, which okay. I just found out about. So interesting. I'm interested to look more into those. That's fascinating. And then she was hired by Phoebe Waller-Bridge as a writer on Killing Eve, which is a show I'm not too familiar with. Obviously, I've heard of it. It's a very popular mm-hmm. show. And then Fennell went on to become a lead writer on that show, then a producer, then a showrunner, and ended up being nominated for another Emmy for her role as a showrunner on that show, even though I do know that fans of that show seem to hate that season that she worked on. Apparently, I don't know the drama there. Uh, frankly, I don't really care too much because I've never seen the show, but I'm interested to watch it one day. So her success in TV got her a small budget of just under $5 million to make her indie film, Promising Young Woman, Mm -hmm. which I think people view as a mid-budget movie, but that was like a real indie film. She only got greenlit for like 20, 23, I think 23 days of shooting. And she directed that movie in three weeks while being seven months pregnant. Yeah, wow. No big deal. And after the success of that movie on uh, streaming. How stressful, oh my God. I I can't imagine. And so that movie did really well at the beginning of the pandemic and streaming because obviously- people were lucky enough to be home and privileged enough to be home. They seem to watch that movie because of word of mouth and her relationship with Margot Robbie's production company, Lucky Chap, who helped produce that film, built her enough clout to make a deal with Amazon MGM to finance Saltburn. And only three years, I think she's made two really great films. She's yeah. made like two poisonous, elevated, grim, fairy tale, darkly comedic, like actually funny thrillers about subject matter that is not shown as funny in movies normally, but somehow she is like this real finger on the pulse of how to be entertaining still. Well, she's like, she has her finger on something that's like, I'm going to be like honest about something that mm-hmm. makes people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, which and, I think some view as try hard, but I think it's yeah. Engaging. Some people view as like, you're trying to shock me. Uh-huh. You're trying to be funny. And like, I just think that her, you know, her films are kind of like misread and like, I I don't know what it is about, um, hearing like, it's mostly men who I'm hearing. Um, I mean, women could feel this way too, but like the critics that I am, I'm kind of like referencing. Yeah. Uh, like kind of talking about it, like 
like this isn't funny and it's like but it's not I don't know mm-hmm. it's she's not trying to be like funny she's like trying to show you something like the like death scene in yeah. promising young woman or like the like Max um green is a greenfield yes yeah. uh who plays schmidt and new girl Love like him. It, like his yeah. reaction and like kind of the like bluntness right of that scene like it's because we like know right like situations like that exist mm-hmm. that like where the like really like dark kind of humor kind of comes from right and, and, and she's also playing on the genre yeah. of like wedding crashers she's exactly, like kind of making yeah. fun of these men who have been kind of glorified yeah throughout it's the like 2000s. not supposed to be like like upfront funny it's supposed to be like like kind of like scathing it's searing yeah and like in like yeah just like ridiculous basically that like she is like showing something that is so uh, yeah. gross and then and and saying like it kind of is something that is not talked about in film like so here's we don't see really movies like that she's making i think here's a good example like with david fincher's the killer people were like he made some really interesting observations in this movie like with amazon for example yeah uh, <laughs> and then in saltburn people were like he picked up a package from an amazon locker hilarious genius. what a genius man i i actually love that but i don't I want to be too condescending to it because i love that movie um <laughs> But, no, but it is but, funny. It's like, the, but what I was, yeah. they're saying that Fincher is making like, you know, astute observations about our culture, where we are right mm-hmm. now. That's why he's one of our best zeitgeisty filmmakers. Like that's the shit I've said on our podcast over the past two weeks. Like mm-hmm. I'm one of those, you know, commentators, I guess I can't believe that. But with Emerald Fennell, uh, people are saying I can feel the effort and yeah. like, I can feel the forcefulness. And I, I think that's the kind of language we're talking about. That is not overtly sexist by any means, but the double standard is like so obvious. You don't have to be a genius to see yeah, it. Yeah, the like try hard commentary like yeah. energy is like, and yeah. What's really sad is all you have to do is like listen to an interview from her. Like listen to a 20 minute interview interview from Emerald Fennell. She's very clear about what she's trying to capture and the tension of like a contemporary moment and that she's trying to do right by those like these issues that have like a lot of stakes in the moment. And she's talked a lot about being really interested in identity constructs and interested in the relationship between sex and power and the complicated dynamics of the class system, obviously and the intricacies of like who has access. Can I just, can I pause you there instead of listening to the actual like filmmaker about what she's saying about her film? I would rather listen to what Paul Schrader yeah. <laughs> uh, thinks about her film. That was good <laughs> timing. Uh, if you give a shit, Paul Schrader is on his Facebook, like talking shit about Emerald Fennell's Saltburn, <laughs> which I just think a lot of critics have just regurgitated. They're like, that's my guy, Paul Schrader. I'm just going to keep repeating what he is saying about Emerald Fennell's Saltburn, which is bullshit. Uh, but yeah, anyways, I just think Fennell is so straightforward about what she's interested in. And it's yeah. things that we're all like any, like, like kind of just rational plugged in person thinks about. So I think it's like fair for us to kind of be sticking up for her anyways. I think uh, something I did pick up in the research is that she has, we share a lot of her favorite films and even her favorite directors. Like she loves Ari Aster, mm-hmm. but was afraid as she said is her favorite movie, not just this year in like five years. Yes. And I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, a lot of people hate that movie. So listeners <laughs> who hate that movie too, you probably are like, this is why I hate Saltburn. Fair enough. Whatever. Yeah. You uh, know what? I, I said social network was like one of our favorite, one of my favorite pods we've done. I think Bo is afraid is also one of our favorite pods that we've done. Yeah, me too. I mean, Ari's great. Um, but yeah, I mean, she seems to love films that are very twisted, subversive, erotic thrillers. Like obviously you're like, you can tell if you've seen, if you're film literate and you watch Saltburn, you'll know, you'll see a lot of movies that, you know, you've seen before in that film. And she's definitely, I don't think it's derivative. She just is very much inspired by that space. And she kind of, twisted a little bit and we'll talk about that today and she's 
Also seems like really interested in manipulating the audience's expectations, which again, I think can be really fun if you're giving her the benefit of the doubt. But if you're going in trying to like attack the filmmaker, you might be annoyed by quote unquote the effort. And I personally love like psychological subgenres. And I, I this idea of shaking an audience is really interesting to me. And I think seeing a filmmaker being straightforward about wanting to do that, I think is fascinating. Well, and I, I- I think shaking is the wrong word though. Like I know what you're saying, but I think it's more like what like she's reflection. doing. I don't. Yeah. Like what she's doing is, um, I was kind of trying to talk about it before mm-hmm. and the like bluntness of it. Um, like she's just straightforward. I just didn't do a good job, but she's like straightforward in her messages mm-hmm. and she's talking about something that people pretend to care about basically. Yes. Right. Like that, that's exactly. kind of what it is. Or people are like putting up a, a front facade about, yeah. um, it's, it's kind of what she's getting at with this idea of like the middle class and like, especially upper middle class or so, um, like pretending that they are, or wanting to have people see them as like lower middle class or talking about like, right. Right. And and so like, and it was telling in the criticism because a lot of the criticism for this movie was like, she's kind of negatively talking about the working class. I'm like, there's no one in the working class being talked about in this movie, like directly for a person to watch Saltburn and go and think that Barry, uh, is it Keoghan? Keoghan. Yeah. Keoghan's character is working class. That is such a middle class reading. He's like in a <laughs> like such a big, like kind of a like distance suburban house. Yeah, like we're not saying that's you know not his life is necessarily class. happy, but exactly. Yeah. Well, that's but that's like the weird part. It's like you know I I don't know completely like the data for movie going, but I'm yeah like assuming that people who have like nights off and are able to go to the movies. Able, yeah, yeah, like can afford the movies. It's like right so. It's a financially stable She's making a comment enough. like uh, towards like people who are in the movie theater. Right. And, and I think like, it's just interesting to see that response because it's like to say that one, it's about nothing. And then also to say it's about like the, a rich sympathy story or to say that it's like, you know, doing people wrong, um, in the working class again, like very Keoghan. Yeah. Like Oliver is like, the whole comment is that he is upper middle class right? Yeah. <laughs> trying to like th- think about uh, well, himself. Yeah. Oh, you want to, you get into it later. I feel like we should touch on it later because okay. once we step in it, like we're really going to get into it. Cause okay. I really want to talk about the movie, but I just feel like to do this pod justice, we should probably talk about Fennell and promising young woman first. And you're like, right. You're right. I do think you've located something though. This idea that Fennell is really interested in, poking at a middle-class privileged life and especially that identity that has created defense mechanisms around its own uh, reality. And I think her being obsessed with that is really cool because that is different. It's much different than an eat the rich film, for example. So again, I'm, I am sort of shocked at the critic reaction to, to this film and her past one, because you know what? It's funny you brought up Fincher and the killer because it does remind me a lot of early Fincher. I don't know if you know this, but like critics for early Fincher, we're arguing that maybe he was a little bit style over stuff substance. Hmm. And I feel like style over substance is what critics are sort of saying about Fennell. And back then Fincher was like a critic stream because he, he sort of kept their lights on because the media could write essays about what his movies had to say or had nothing to say at all. And I think in a similar way, critics seem to be like squeezing Fennell's work to get as much clout as they can out of it. Like, and I don't mean just TikTokers. like I'm talking like, New York times critics, yeah. like critics across the board, however you want to like identify them. I think Fennell is being used as sort of a punch bag of clickbait and money for like three years now. Yeah. 
which is kind of hilarious. I'm, I'm assuming for her, it must be kind of tough because I know she's plugged into social media. Yes. And I'm sure her algorithm is, you know, not by like her searching for anything, just her name is pretty tough, yeah. I would assume. And it must be weird to see a bunch of people making money off of just shitting on your movies that are like so well intended. Yeah. And I think like, especially with Promising Young Woman, I've heard her talk about how she like kind of expected that in a way, right? Because mm-hmm. she's talking about like sexual assault and, and also she is doing it in a like heightened way. Uh, Right. And during like a me too movement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but there, it's not, again, like it's just misinterpreted. It's not like uh, necessarily about revenge, Mm -hmm. right? Like uh, people were talking about it. Like this is wrong because it's a revenge story. It's like, no, she's like trying to communicate a, a, another like deeper message about culture yes. through a genre story. Like exactly. And and so I, I think that I've heard her talk about promising young women, a uh, woman and say that she kind of like expected that, or I don't know if that's in like hindsight, I'm sure it's like just tough to see people like criticize your movie or like have it be so divisive. Right. But uh, I think with Saltburn, like it's probably like kind of confounding. Like I'm confused. Totally. At, um, why it's such a divisive response. Yeah. I, I mean, in revisiting her work, you know, again, with Promising Young Woman and then researching her career pretty deeply, I do think like her project is provocative and I think people aren't giving it enough credit, which is why it's so divisive. And so she's probably right to like expect it because really what she's doing, if we're going to like talk about what she's doing in its bare bones, she's trying to make an audience feel complicit, which is like quite the task. You know, that's that is something that Martin Scorsese does. But Martin Scorsese is a filmmaker that's been around for five decades. So somebody, you know, he should be judged on a different rubric, but somehow it feels like Emerald Fennell is judged on a harsher rubric. <laughs> yeah. Somehow that's wild. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we tried to hold Killers of the Flower Moon more accountable. Yeah. And other, you know, podcasts who are much bigger than us did not do that. And I feel like we got, you know, pushback for that, which is why we had, you know, an Osage consultant from the film, you know, come on the show because we wanted to hear Chris Cote's like perspective. Mm-hmm. And that that's a filmmaker that got a lot more leeway. You know, there was a lot more, you know, he had good intentions and the end of this film is kind of beautiful when he comes and speaks to the audience instead of maybe trying to like find some type of nuance there. And so yeah. it's fascinating to see people like basically attack a Fennell film. Yeah. And um, people, I mean, I assuming that people will be like, well, he is like earned his like place and like yeah. we know his intentions kind of thing, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But like, it's like for me, like, I think it's like more maybe glaring what like certain holes of his work are even though i love obviously like martin scorsese we did a whole like oh my god we did a whole month yeah like obviously i love his films but it's it's just like strange that like yeah that it's been similar to a lot of other movies with like huge names that that we have talked about where it's like why is this like weird to like criticize and say we still liked the movie yeah you know versus like this it's like yeah let's all support a uh like going against a filmmaker and again it's fine if you didn't like the movie but it's a different thing to like rally in this like uh kind of nonsensical the movie is about nothing it's so condescending right and i think our as a show i think what we've discovered that what we try to do when we cover new releases is that we try to hold movies that deal with hundreds of millions of dollars of a, a large budget basically millionaire filmmakers who have very large budgets and access to resources and have had longevity in Hollywood, we try to hold them to much higher standards than independent filmmakers or first, second, third time filmmakers. Um, So I think that's just, that was the biggest contradiction I saw in the reaction recently to big movies 
But anyways, like I think for Emerald Fennell, like what she's having a difficult job of trying to do because of doing something contemporary, she's having this like difficult, very challenging job of trying to figure out this maintaining this like tough balance of being transgressive without being contrarian. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, especially as a woman director, even if like it is a wealthy white woman, she's still like given this lower margin of error. So that kind of like sexism that we're talking about, that's built into the Hollywood system or the media cycle. Like how we said with Olivia Wilde last year, which, you know, is a different movie and that's a different story, but like you can read those essays on Harry Styles all again, like that was rough. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think for Emerald Fennell, it's, it's fascinating because like if she doesn't, you know, maybe balance that super well, it feels like people are coming out a little bit harsher. So for me personally, I think for both of us, I think Fennell has now made two very good, if not mainstream, great movies that are a bit ruthless and a bit indulgent. But I think in the ways that they are ruthless and indulgent, they're in very fun ways. And to me, at least, I think, like for Promising Young Woman, maybe this is a good transition for us to talk about the 2020 film. Yeah. I think we saw this movie in 2020 at the start of the pandemic. We liked it quite a lot when it came out. I think I even loved it and I just rewatched it again and I liked it a little bit less, but I still really appreciated it and thought it was very good, especially as a first feature. Um, And people who were kind of lucky enough, like I said earlier, to be told to stay home and could stay home, probably know that that movie was released at an awful time because there was like this collective terrible mood because of the obvious questions surrounding the pandemic and Mm -hmm. what would happen in the future for people's jobs in their lives, in their health. And there was just a lot of anxieties at that time, a lot of question marks about the future. And then you have promising young woman come out, which is like a really provocative text and it and stars a big actor like Carrie Mulligan. And it was made with this confident, like really confident vibe from a first time filmmaker with, with a, you know, a pushing text and it kind of, it kind of took off uh, as, as the movie, the the movie did really well for better or worse as a, as a movie that kind of, I think people picked apart like crazy and that kind of picking apart of promising young woman was like, like I always said, it it was as if our greatest living filmmakers had made it. It was like, it, I feel like I'm not being hyperbolic. The way people talked about promising young woman was as if Martin Scorsese made it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which I think, ironically it kind of led Fennell to win an Oscar and in revisiting the movie and listening back to Fennell on the film I I don't feel complicated about the movie still three years later I didn't in 2020 and I don't in 2023 um and we'll talk about it yeah it's like it's like obviously a first-time filmmaker mm -hmm. um is gonna have some like flaws in their movie so not to like just you know you know it's like to not just say like, Oh yeah, that's like a part of it. And here are criticisms I have. Um, it it was like the same kind of like strong reaction. This feels a little bit more heightened. Uh Um, but maybe like just building off of that that steam. But I think like, yeah, even hearing her talk about it though, a lot of people had a huge criticism about like, uh, this is a filmmaker who made a movie about sexual assault where, uh, cops come at the end and save the day. Sure. And yeah. like I, that, that is I, for that reading, like I understand uh, people's reading at the end, mm-hmm. but ultimately like, that's not what the movie was about. And I don't think that even though that is in the movie, like that's what she was saying right. um, that like cops are going to come solve this. I have some good quotes from her about this. And then, yeah. well, before, before you like, yeah. uh, cause I, I don't have the quotes, but like um, maybe they'll, they'll back this up too. Like mm-hmm. she talked about, how what because she was you know making a movie for the first time she wanted to end it on the death scene right and they said that that was like too not nihilistic and like yeah we need to make money in this movie like we can't end it at the bachelor party with a dead carrie mulligan like that's too devastating yeah so they like had her 
uh, end it in this way. And of course, like it's still her movie, but like, it's just like strange that, um, people kind of aren't paying attention to also like what producers are like pushing her to maybe do. Totally. Um, I think bottoms this year with Emma Seligman kind of suffered from that too. You could feel like some producer hands on that movie. Yeah. I I do think that is, that is a thing with first, second time films for, from filmmakers. Um, sort of like you understand, but also sort of not, especially in a film like promising young woman. Cause it was kind of a tight script. It was, I mean, it won the Oscar for screenplay. Uh, but I don't know. Fennell has stated many times that the intentions of that movie was that she wanted to make a multi-genre dark comedy revenge thriller that highlighted the cultural limits of hashtag me too at that time. And she wanted to capitalize also on like the injustice of Brock Turner's case, which is why the movie is called Promising Young Woman. Mm -hmm. And she also wanted to like illustrate how ironic it was that seemingly like leftist pop culture normalized sexual assault in television and film throughout her entire life. And Mm -hmm. those films still glossed over like a basic notion of consent. And specifically for her as a woman in the industry, she obviously knew that space really well. So she was kind of perfectly tasked to talk about that and that contradiction especially politically in the United States. And so, yeah, I mean, she was asked to reveal a lot about her life in the press and many interviewers went way too far back in 2020, asking questions to her and Carrie Mulligan, like really sexist questions, really uncomfortable questions. There, what is you, do you have a history of sexual assault? Like things that were very blunt, like uh, just completely inappropriate, not even inappropriate, like beyond that. Yeah. Which is not dissimilar, but obviously to like a lesser extent, like now assault burn, like how rich were you as a kid? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's very similar Mm -hmm. in in that sense of like kind of pushing it, the the author to kind of open up about their childhood, which is fascinating. And, and Fennell, like she, she did go into like some tough places in interviews, but she made the through line of promising young woman, like really clear to me. And I think Kelsey too, like she wanted to explore political contradictions when it came to gender through the lens of a woman fronted revenge tale where the revenge sort of fails. And I think Fennell has said that she really wanted to get across this cynical, but realistic message of, in her opinion, there being no victory in a patriarchy. And then this additional message to men watching the film about their culpability and benefiting from that system. And those, I I think to me, are really commendable, big ideas. And even if those marks weren't hit for, for a lot of people, she had like, I don't know, she even had smaller goals for the film that I think were successful. Like Fennell has this great quote where she said one of the reasons she wanted to make the movie is because um, picking up drunk people or getting people drunk in order to seduce them was like a punchline of jokes in movies and TV throughout her childhood. Yeah. And it was like never really taken seriously. And that seemed like really frightening to her as a child and intriguing at the same time. And she wanted to make a film kind of interrogating this male dominated space of Hollywood and also this male ignorance that leads to more larger problems like a Brock Turner. So I thought that pitch you know, for her film was fantastic. And so did Margot Robbie's team, her production team. And for listeners who like don't know, like Margot Robbie's production team has been funding Emerald Fennell two movies in a row now and is also in potentially this is the rumor that Margot Robbie's team might be getting the rights to the biopic for the Britney Spears film. They're in the conversation. Yeah, that would be Fennell loves Spears, obviously. So that would be huge for her. Uh, And I think that film would be really interesting, Um, especially because we get to talk about shitty Justin Timberlake again, which would be fascinating (laughs) because we had like a 10 minute uh, just kind of pivot in our social network pod about that. <laughs> Anyways, um, so if people don't really remember the Promising Young Woman story, just a quick kind of protein here. The story features a character named Cassie, played excellently by Carrie Mulligan, who 
would become this sort of avenging angel, as Emerald Fennell puts it, for Cassie's friend who died of suicide after she was sexually assaulted and not believed by her friends and the police. And Fennell wanted to portray Cassie in like this, un, you know, in an uncomplicated and complicated way, trying to find a balance there and like really place Cassie in complex situations where you are mostly forgiving Cassie in her actions, even if she pushes like her revenge plan to some extremes. Yeah. And Fennell wanted to make sure that everything Cassie did in the film was sort of within reason of this fantastical environment she was creating. Yes. And she also wanted to make sure that Cassie's mission was very clear to the audience and critics, which I thought a lot of critics sort of misread at the time. Yeah. Well, something that's interesting about both Saltburn and Promising Young Woman is people are calling them character studies. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're character studies. Like they're more so about like a, a societal, like, um, kind of like hypocrisy or like something people are trying to, or people don't want to talk about or feel uncomfortable talking about something Um, that we all have blinders up. Yes. Yeah. And, And she is doing it again through this genre. Like, so when Cassie is doing it like this, these like quote unquote, like revenge, um, you know, like, tactics or what you know whatever yeah, it is like yeah. parts of the story she's like revenge missions yes yeah. yeah those are not supposed to be taken like at the their face like it's yeah, not supposed literally. to be like i am supporting or i'm forgiving like this character it's not like a story about like like what is like moral yeah. in the sense of what Cassie's doing. Like I, it's, I think, it's more so like, okay, like she is heightening, mm-hmm. right. These situations and these conversations to pinpoint mm-hmm. the, like the hypocrisy or things that we already know are like going on. Yeah. I mean, usually when you see a movie elevated, like promising young woman, it's got big systemic ideas on its mind. And so when critics call something a character study, I genuinely just don't think they know how to talk about the movie. Like when you call a drama a character study, like a melodrama, I understand mm-hmm. that. But any other genre, genre, I feel like it's very odd to call it a character study. It just yeah. means that- I mean, like something like something that would be an, like an exception would be like everything everywhere all at once. Like that is both a genre movie, but I could also see people calling it like a character study. That's also a very special like Oscar winning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, I mean, so is Promising Young Woman, but everything everywhere is like a very like kind of singular movie in a yeah. lot of ways. Uh, but also doing something similar, like subverting a genre and using it to your advantage, but also doing something like twisting it a bit. Yeah. God, I love that movie. Um, so yeah, I mean, to, to go on with the plot a little bit, like Cassie is kind of featured in this way that she's stuck in this unwinnable battle against patriarchy to just get like men to acknowledge and apologize for their predatory behavior or literally their assault on women. And Fennell wanted to ask for like, you know, she said this a lot in interviews at the time, but it seems like people just weren't taking it seriously. She said that she just wanted for the film to ask for the bare minimum of the male characters in the film and then make sure that there is this deliberately unsatisfying resolution at the end or like ending Mm -hmm. where the theme I thought was very clear or was to us at least that men will not give women the bare minimum, which is like this acknowledgement of predatory behavior. And so the ending is like really bleak because Fennell's vision of the film was to highlight there, there is no victory in a culture that empowers systems that perpetuate patriarchal rules. Like that was the whole idea of the movie. So yeah, I, it's I, like I, b- the um, Bo Burnham character. Exactly. Like, right. Is yeah. 
like it is kind of like the example of that, right? right. Like upholding or like forgiving. Right. Um, it just, or maybe not forgiving is the word, but like not no accountability. Like mm-hmm. at the end, the cop basically like gives him yes. the answers to the case to like just dismiss it, which was supposed to be the anti-cop message that kind of got yeah. lost because of the last image, which yeah, I, again, exactly though. makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense to me though, that why that was kind of confused or, or not even confused. That that's how people feel like I totally understand it is a challenging film and I understood why so many people were conflicted yeah, at I don't the think time. It's, also, I don't think it's like perfect in every single no, point yeah. that it's making. It like, dropped a half star for me. Yeah. It dropped a half star. But but that doesn't mean <laughs> that it's like one, what people were saying, like, don't we already know this? That's like one of my least favorite criticisms. Oh, that's just um, ridiculous. There's actually like not another genre movie that's like popular that even yeah or if they're made by men and they're like usually through a male gaze yeah you know what i mean like kill bill comes to mind as mm-hmm. a movie that she like finnell was obviously commenting on yeah 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 in yeah, both right. of her movies in some ways uh yeah but anyways i understand why people are conflicted about promising young woman so many critics and casual moviegoers seemed really frustrated that the film was revealing like what kelsey's saying like this injustice that was already clear to them and i think that is like a a fine response and i think it's a response many have when watching films dealing with contemporary issues of like any issue i think that the audience goes i already know about this because i'm already thinking about this but that's the point of the movie existing which i always think is interesting because that's i think it's much more commendable for a filmmaker to talk about a problem now than it is to talk about a problem from a century ago and try to connect it somehow does that make sense? Like, I think period pieces yeah. are incredibly poignant when they're about systemic issues, mm-hmm. but like, I think it's they're much safer. more difficult. Yeah. I think they're safer. That's what I mean. Yeah. Thank you. Like, that's totally right on. And I think this is not a safe movie for a filmmaker to make, especially in their first movie. Um, so I, but I understand again, like the audience felt like the movie was a little bit condescending and maybe there were some like angry essays about how the movie was monetizing a feminist movement. And I think that, again, that is fair to some extent. And I think those readings are understandable. But I personally thought the film was like still very necessary. If that means anything at all, I don't know, up to the listeners. But ultimately, I think there was like this misunderstanding with the motivations of the movie because it seems, yeah. you know, it seems Fennell really wanted to portray microaggressions that had never really been addressed in films in a specific genre while also commenting on what you were saying, like this contradiction of things like romantic comedies of that era. Mm -hmm. And I think Fennell also like what I think is most important, wanted to address the men who are watching the film and wanting to provoke them about moments in their lives where they had done something sexist in a small way or hopefully not worse. And then possibly moments where they were confronted on it and they wanted to maybe apologize but to get forgiveness, but not to apologize to like accept and acknowledge yes. what they did was wrong. Yeah, which it's a film the about of the movie. Account- accountability, exactly. about the lack of accountability. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I also think that there was a criticism, which again is fair, is like the idea of like focusing on like a white like woman's experience, like mm-hmm. who like went to college and like, and, and like, again, like fair criticisms, um, when we are talking about like violence against women, mm-hmm. uh, but I, again, like then have, you know, that that's like a, a lot of movies, like we could have that criticism towards and like yeah. you, and I, that, that's fair criticism to have, like, as far as representation in terms of like Hollywood films, obviously it's just yeah. like, again, the kind of reducing, um, the movie kind of conveniently instead of like talking about or, or giving it like, right. Uh, kind of room to talk about like, what is the filmmaker saying? Mm-hmm. What is the movie about? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously it is something that was like timely in terms of like what people were talking about 
with Me Too. Yeah. Um, and it's also, again, just like films are not made about the issue that promising young woman is about. And so it's just or like if they are, it's done in like a very kind of tragic genre or tragic narrative. Yeah. That is so very important, through, but yeah. usually not readily seen or readily exactly. available yeah, to a lot of people. It's not as widely seen. Yeah. yeah. But and so this was interesting. Yeah. So again, like while, while like I do understand criticisms, it's like, m- again, the kind of criticisms were more so just similar to Saltburn in terms of the, like, the intensity, mm-hmm. um, the like saying, because like this happened at the end, this is like the overall point of the movie, Yeah, which I, I just genuinely, I, I like don't, I think there were like more nuanced points like within it. Um, yeah. so to just say like this movie is about cops saving the day. I yeah. just genuinely, I think if you, if you watch it like that, is it just not what she's saying? So it's, yeah, Even if it's in the movie. Well, that might mean the movie isn't as successful. Sure. You know what I mean? That's Maybe fine. if that's the mass reading that's coming away from it, even I if we think like it's, it's different. Yeah, I feel like it's just like fair to talk about like what is the movie actually trying to say and right. then like agree or disagree Instead with of it. like projecting like already kind of an angst on it. Yeah, I, I it's interesting because it seemed pretty clear to us at the time. So there must be other people who are relating to what we're saying right now, because if this podcast was like promise a young woman, problematic, saltburn dumb like we would probably get a lot of love but mm-hmm. i would be curious to know if any listeners are relating to what we're saying who liked promising young, young woman fine if not if very good movie yeah i feel like because we like liked these movies and like we think they're good it's like that puts us in the love category to people it's like yeah. it's so interesting which is, yeah which um we bring up on the podcast quite a lot like yeah. unfortunately just trying to like be reasonable is looked at as like an extreme <laughs> yeah <laughs> Cause it's, cause it's the, the moment we're in right now with film commentators coming it's off so like TikTok weird. and becoming more famous. Yeah. I, anyways, that's going to get into another conversation, but I do understand that like the film is complicated because Cassie wins in very small ways. And so it becomes a little confusing to a lot of people to only like lose in the biggest way at the end of the film by like dying. Mm-hmm. So I think that or being killed. So I think people were confused tonally. And yeah. I think that is fair. But to me, mm-hmm. I think that again, I think it's an, inc- the movie was an incredible challenge and I think it was like pretty successful and then I think as a filmmaker and her team that she surrounded herself with, I think visually her team captured this like melted candy coated atmosphere. There is incredible production design in this movie. Yeah. S- like needle drops that had both of us go oh, like, you know, grabbing each other's arms. Like when the Britney Spears toxic yeah. needle drop happens at the end, it's a wild moment. Really fascinating of a choice for that kind of music. We played in that movie at that, that tone. And I think Fennell navigates this, promising young woman elevated world in such an unsatisfying way, which I think is really cool because that's purposely done. I thought that was really commendable. And I think arguably a lot more challenging than a bleak melodrama about the very same issues of this film. And Fennell said in press that she wanted to make her American psycho or midsummer, a film that she really loves. And I thought those were great examples because those are movies where there are no real victories at the end or a clear resolution. Mm -hmm. And I think those movies are recognized as like brutally funny and like horrific films at the same time. And I do think she accomplishes that here with tone and a very uncomfortable film. So I just don't know many filmmakers who could capture promising young woman's tone that the blend of tone and themes and only their first feature. Yeah. It's really impressed. Yeah, It's really impressive. Yeah. Her like style, um, the kind of like, again, like bleak, uh, humor mm-hmm. balance, which again, I don't think is like always like completely balanced, but like, I think she does a great job like playing with it that other people are not playing with. Like, yeah. it feels like she is kind of like daring to take a risk. And I like respect 
that in um in a movie yeah and just so we don't move on from it like i because i know you did you already did a great job talking about it with the cop stuff but i do want to give the quote from finale before we move on to saltburn about the cop stuff because i think that was the biggest i understood this criticism the most the biggest criticism about promise young woman was that the ending was this final image of the cops coming to quote unquote save the day that a lot of people argued was at very at the very least in bad taste or even politically charged with this like heroic depiction of law enforcement at the end of the film. And Fennell responded to this by saying that the police to her are deliberately presented as, as blundering sexist and idiotic where they come to investigate Bo Burnham's character and speak about Cassie as if she has mental health issues once they find out that she's missing. And they're trying to like push Bo Burnham's character to basically say that she does have mental health issues And they even like show the cops say that the father specifically said that Cassie had mental health issues. Yeah. Not the mother, but the father, like that was the language being used. Yeah. I think again, very point when you watch the movie again, you're like, Oh, I see how she did this. There's, um, you know, it's interesting because she made, uh, Saltburn, which has like very obvious, like talented Mr. Ripley nods. There's Mm -hmm. a scene that I love in talented Mr. Ripley, um, where, Dickie's dad comes to investigate, right? Yeah, like, yeah. The murder, and uh, he's talking to Gwyneth Paltrow's character, who's Dickie's like girlfriend, mm-hmm. and he goes, "Like, my dear, like there is like female intuition, and then there's fact, oh and like God. that that um, I forgot scene about that with the parents of like the dad being like, well, yeah, like she, you know, maybe her yeah. like kind of uh, or him kind of like not." listening to or believing his, yeah. yeah her mom um yeah. or believing his daughter yeah right. yeah like uh it was obviously like a very pointed but i think maybe like could it even be like inspired i don't know if she's a talented mr ripley fan interesting i like the idea that emerald Fennell saw gwyneth paltrow's character and was like i want to make a movie about this character and like in an exaggerated world and then twist the plot a little bit and like how she's not believed at the end of the movie and you know how like oh, even yeah, matt damon's a, character gaslights yeah, her a lot i definitely end. don't think that promising woman has like anything to do with the talent of mr ripley i just like, she's she has to be a fan but i feel like yeah, yeah. No, i mean you could pull from like a lot of movies of yeah women not being believed you know what's yeah. interesting about promising young woman on rewatch it wasn't the cop stuff that i thought was the most controversial to me the most complicated part of the film was uh connie Britton's character as the dean in this patriarch role mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who covered up for the man who assaulted uh, Cassie's best friend. And they show Connie Britton's Dean character as this like liberal coded woman in power. And to me, that was really a complex character. And I thought Connie Britton's performance was fantastic, but I thought that was the most searing part of the commentary that you could argue was like, you know, the most provocative part of yeah. the movie because of what that's actually saying. And I actually think that commentary on Connie Britton's kind of liberal hypocrisy is the actual commentary of Saltburn that she kind of goes into more, which is interesting to me. I, I recommend people rewatch. Yeah. Promising Young you Woman. know, I, I feel like, um, coach Taylor, uh, yeah. Wife, Connie Britton. <laughs> Connie Britton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> It's getting late over here. Just so everybody knows. Yeah. Connie Britton. Um, I feel like that is kind of like a Rosamund or uh, Rosamund Pike. Character. Is it Rosamund? I think it isn't it. Okay. If we say, sorry, if it's Rosamund or Rosamund, I think it's Rosamund. I think you're right. I think you're right. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I think, I think you're, you're right. Like that is something that she like kind of goes into in Saltburn. Mm-hmm. Like, but, but yeah, like that was one of the most provocative scenes and it's a, probably a perfect example. Like where we were talking about the, the kind of like, um, cop message, like the Bo Burnham conversation with the cop 
is the more so like example of probably what Emerald Fennell was trying to get at. And this idea of him like giving Bo Burnham all the answers Mm -hmm. to the case. So Bo Burnham could like stay in the clear. And then with this scene specifically, right? Like she says, um, she basically, I I think leads the Dean to believe that her daughter, right. Is in danger. Um, and uh, people read that as like this, like toxic kind of like, like reversing yeah um psychological like violence on like from women uh mm-hmm. or from a woman on an, uh, to another woman and i think that like that just was like not the point though of the scene it was more it was literally again like we keep repeating using these heightened genre you know stories tropes that to, people should be familiar with to yeah. elevate a point that she's trying to make and that's right. really just it about like, that identity yeah. of that dean and that power that she has and like where she's like addressing. Yeah. And like rationalizing violence. Yeah. Yeah. Should we talk about Saltburn? Let's talk about Saltburn. Okay. So obviously films about discrimination with like an added social commentary have been like very popular recently. We've talked a lot about them on this podcast, this like social thriller genre that I think Jordan Peele has called all of his films, like as a part of this social thriller, that's what he usually says is that he Mm -hmm. makes social thrillers. They all focus on, discrimination or class tension as kind of like the driving force of their movies. And I think that's probably the most popular subgenre right now. Even if it sounds pretentious, I do think that is like one of the more popular film head, you know, subgenres. What social thrillers? Social thrillers. Okay, like yeah. obviously Bong Joon-ho with Parasite, Jordan Peele's three films, I could argue are all in that genre. Aster's Midsummer for sure. Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden is also a movie I thought a lot about while watching Saltburn, I think these are all extremely effective films over the past five to seven years, critically and commercially, like really well received about class, about identity with like other cutting themes on nationalism and racism and sexism. So this social thriller genre that has always been around, but is like really taken off since Get Out for the most part, especially Mm -hmm. in the United States is sort of using a elevated reality and then using discrimination that is very real, that has existed you know, forever, but is very contemporary in the conversation as its tension and specifically often class. And I think the genre is really successful when it is poking and like a horrifying blend of genres, specifically between the thriller and a dark comedy. And I kind of view Fennell's work with Saltburn in line with those other filmmakers, which I know is going to probably piss a lot of people off yeah. because we're talking Bong Joon-ho and Park Jam-wook. Who I been definitely like, don't think it's in the same tier of like a quality as an overall film. Um, sure. I'm not ranking them. Yeah, I just I mean like it feels yeah, like it's but I think in it's, that it's genre. It's more so like to me and kind of like the menu like tier, but that doesn't, but I still liked the menu. Like, okay. I, but I think that the menu is like kind of, and Saltburn are kind of like, um, like they're, they're under the like umbrella uh-huh. of, of like what you're talking about in terms of a social thriller. I just think that like in terms of like get out and us and like, you know, parasite. Sure. I I think that the stories are a little bit more nuanced and I'm not saying that like, again, I'm not saying that Emerald Fennell's movie isn't smart or anything like that. I just think it's a little bit more straightforward and like, um, and like, it's kind of like an extended metaphor where I think that sometimes like something like parasite and, um, like Jordan Peele's movies felt like a little bit more like, uh, 
like I don't, allegorical is not the correct well word, i was gonna say allegorical. but they feel like a little it, more, more extended does that make sense where i think like the menu and Saltburn feel contained okay um a, a little bit more I, I, that sounds like i'm making kind of like a a evaluation of the the quality but well, maybe you maybe you I are know. i mean it sounds yeah. like you just like Saltburn a lot less than those, than those other films yes yeah. yeah and i think that's totally fine to say that like it's not like I just I'm trying to find the right frame framework in which to talk about this movie because I think it's being re I think it's being kind of reframed as as a when talented Mr. Ripley mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's the right framing device though I obviously see the connections yeah obviously but I think this film should be talked about more in that kind of B version of Parasite. Yes. Does that make yeah, sense? Because I think of what the commentary yeah. saying especially about an attack on a working class but this case it's like a satire on an upper middle class. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think Jordan Peele is an interesting person too, to, to talk about when it comes to Emerald Fennell, because I think he specifically has nailed in all three of his films, this kind of cultural and political contradiction about power in Hollywood and the media. And he is someone who has talked about how he has been laughed at and laughed with on comedy central from liberals and conservatives alike for decades and has been open about that anxiety of being in that awkward space and that anxiety being central to the themes in his films. And he really understands the hypocrisies of Hollywood culture, like very deeply, especially in the film. Nope. And maybe like how liberal middle-class groups or outwardly conservative middle-class groups are, are part of the kind of villains in his movies, especially Mm -hmm. like also his second film us, which is literally like a two hour film about how our economic privileges supersede who we vote for. And the film really provokes the audience that made many of us are kind of full of it with like our bumper sticker politics when you actually compare our actions to our politics, yeah. which is like what that movie is trying to say to all audiences, which is why it's a special film. And I know this is an appeal podcast and I know we just said we're talking about Saltburn, but I do think Emerald Fennell deserves to be like in that conversation. But I do think she's taken more heat funnily enough than those other filmmakers, even yeah. Jordan Peele. Because I do think they're confronting this similar a similar idea, a middle class. And I, I feel like they're provoking at a high level, even if even if, you know, Saltburn isn't as good as Peel's three films. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like I think like I think you're right it, to say that it is in that like kind of social thriller genre. But mm-hmm. I think like the better comp is to say the menu. I'm trying to think of like another Okay, movie like glass too. glass onion. Yeah. Like okay. just the kind of like lack of like intense criticism around like the menu is such a straightforward mm-hmm. eat the rich, um, literally like, uh, you know, message about class. Mm-hmm. And I view this as like so straightforward, but people like aren't giving it, giving it even the time to say like, what is this about? Um, I think something being accessible, which we view Saltburn as mm-hmm. accessible doesn't mean it's straightforward. Okay. I, I, I do think yeah. the menu is like explicitly straightforward. Like we have a writer, Seth Reese on our podcast. We really liked that movie. And he was like, yeah, we wanted to make an eat the rich movie. There's other stuff in here about the artist, you know, and having to like sacrifice their art to, to the make money. The Ratatouille moment, <laughs> uh, yeah. and, Ra- and Ralph Fiennes is fant- Ray Fiennes is terrific in that film. Anyways, this, we don't need to stick up for the menu, but I do think that like calling Saltburn the menu glass onion and triangle of sadness genre I don't think that's right. Like, I, I mean, that's fine. Like you think it's like, uh, like in the middle somewhere. I think it's more like an us and parasite. Like okay. I do think it's in that tier and I, I know I'm in the minority. I, yeah, this. I'm I not, like this film. I'm a not lot. with you on that. Like, I don't think it's in that like tier of like, of like 
quality and nuance in terms yeah. of a, in terms of a comment. Right. Um, and that's you, what I mean, by the way. It's not Parasite, like one of the best films of the decade. Well, I would be yeah. interested to, to know like when you rewatch it, like if you still feel that way. Um, I do need to see it again. Yeah. Just because I feel like there is something that after you watch, you know, like a Jordan Peele movie, you're like, damn, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, yeah. you're, you're like, it's <laughs> you need like three so days. good, yeah. like seamless, like um, it hits. It's funny. It's like, it's haunting. Right. Uh, and, and not that like Saltburn, I just think like Saltburn was a really like fun time. I, I view it similar again to the killer. Like I just like was like, I had a good time. Yeah, that was fun. That was a f- also like a, a like like a cool way to like embed this commentary. Mm-hmm. I you know what? Maybe I'll be unpopular for this. Like while I don't think it's necessarily like the a Jordan Peele, you know, tier movie. Yeah. I think it's way more um, like uh, I guess like nuanced or way more has has something to say more so than the killer. You know, like, okay, yeah. Um, and, and so like, it's just weird to hear like all the criticism, like we've been talking about, I don't want to like keep, you know, yeah. going over it, but, um, but yeah, I mean like I liked it. Like I thought it was a good movie. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> well, you know what movie I'm surprised you haven't brought up yet, but it's the biggest comp to last what? year's films is all my friends hate me. One of your favorite movies in the past few years. And that's a yeah. very independent British film. I mean, but the very but similar Salford humor was like, so like, like the the quality of Saltburn, like the style, yeah, was like so awesome. It was yep. like so unique. But what's crazy to me, and my point, I guess, is if Ruben Usland made Saltburn, it feels like a Ruben Usland movie. That's I'm, that's I'm, more so the comp. I know you already said it, but like I think that's more so the comp. But, it feels stylish in like a really fun. I think people way. would say it's one of his best movies, though, and that's why I'm kind of saying it. Triangle must, of Sadness. No, if Ruben Usland made Saltburn. Oh, yeah. Oh. And you know what I mean? Like if he didn't make triangle of sadness instead, he came out with Saltburn. I think people would go, wow, like this yeah, is it's kind of a more genre, like force majeure. Yeah. Anyways, I, I just thought, it, <laughs> I think it's interesting to try to frame this conversation around the genre. Cause I just think that movies being misread a little bit as like the handmaiden meets talented Mr. Ripley or brideshead's revisited. Like, I think those are genres it's playing with that are very yeah. easy to point out, but it's commentary is doing something more along, along the lines of what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's talk about Saltburn Protein, like at least some of the plot here. So we're set in the English school year of 2006, which I believe in England, if you start your school year, like in 2006, for example, you were the class of 06. Okay. Whereas here, we would say we were the class of 2007 because we okay. would say we're the class of the, of the year that we're spring. graduating in. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So they do the opposite. Apparently, that's created a lo- large controversy Someone around the film know. and timing. I'm pretty sure that's right. But like a lot of people have said like flow riders low or... No, no, wait. Super bad, I think, specifically, like, didn't come out yet, but it came out in like the summer or August of 2007. But most of this film, I believe, at Saltburn is in the summer of 2007. I thought I saw like a time jump. Yeah. At least. Like, I thought I saw. Well, we some saw them graduate. Cue. Yeah. Well, we saw like Felix and Oliver graduate. So yeah. that tells us we're but, 2007. I mean, even, even then, like, even if it were like slightly anachronistic, mm-hmm. like, it's around the time. So who yeah. cares? Like, yeah, imagine at least for me. I, also like being like uh, Napoleon sick didn't make any sense timeline wise, <laughs> but then being like Saltburn, this sucks because it doesn't get the timeline right. Like what are the stakes there? And we really liked Napoleon. I can't yeah. wait to talk about that movie, yeah. but, but you don't understand my point. It's just kind of weird. Anyways. Uh, so we see a lot of cringe modern period piece moments with like a live strong bracelet 
on Felix. He was uh, wearing a Livestrong yeah, bracelet? It's no yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, And okay. obviously like music like Low and I'm not really familiar with MGMT because we might be like young millennials, but we don't know any, I don't know that music, like time to pretend and hang me up to dry. But apparently that had a big impact on people who are older millennials. And I saw the ring in the, in the film and obviously yeah. super bad. That was really cool. But I could at moments feel like there was Abercrombie spray coming out of my screen. <laughs> and so I thought the period piece was really effective. <laughs> That's the 3d like, yeah, what is the 4dx experience? The, 40X, <laughs> the Abercrombie spray comes out of your seat. Yeah. Uh, Jacob Elordi at one point, I think has like an Aeropostale or like Hollister belt on, which just oh, gave me a he? really, Oh wow. do you remember the, like the Hollister mm-hmm. cargo shorts, the, the plat. Oh yeah. my God. Uh, so yeah, the period piece of it all is really funny and awful purposely. And I thought it was a really fascinating time jump for those reasons, because as an audience, we're, we're familiar with this time, but it's never been quite accurately represented on screen. I know bottom sort of tried to do that recently, but it wasn't exactly millennial or Gen Z. Yeah. It was all over the place in terms of like the eras, which was cool. It was yeah. just something different, but I think Fennell seemed so familiar with that 2006, 2007 awful style and awful pop culture of that mm. era, even though the ring sick, super bad, sick. But like she had this great quote in press where she said that she really wanted to create this cringe atmosphere to make people laugh at at the beginning to feel comfortable because nothing 15 years ago is cool Yeah, at any point in history. <laughs> I thought that was a really honestly like on point, like you know, observation, because if something was 30 years ago, we might think of it as cool. Yeah. I think it's like, it's funny, uh, seeing 2006 or seeing, I guess like the 15 years ago, like for whatever year that that is for you, you know what I mean? Like the cringe period of, of your life kind of like, or like cringe, like cultural, like, uh, things that people thought were cool. It's like, that is really funny. And like, there is something about like setting it in 2006 for like a, a certain like generation that immediately like sets an atmosphere totally in the audience. Right. And I was in like, I thought it was hilarious. I didn't even really know where the second half of the film was going to go until we started seeing some weird stuff from Oliver that was kind of telling of him maybe being a sociopath. Yeah. (laughs) So the first half of this movie is set at Oxford university where we follow Barry Keoghan as Oliver quick, a freshman who is very awkward and a little bland and a little bit leechy. He's kind of a voyeuristic, intellectually insecure person that is coming off as financially struggling, though is also portrayed as an outsider. And you're not really sure how much you should believe at this point because the film is kind of being, it's prompting you to think it's a mystery really until we arrive at Saltburn, I think. Yeah. I think Fennell is like setting him up as this calculating figure. Well, yeah, there's definitely like an unreliable narrator at the jump. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kind of, I, I think like when you get to Saltburn, like you said, you are more so like, there's obviously like the class comments so clear yeah. when he is like arriving and showing him like through all the rooms that mm-hmm. you're like, okay, something more sinister is is going on here. Right. I mean, I figured something sinister was going on when we started seeing Oliver narrate just because we have a relationship to talented Mr. Ripley, which I'm assuming mm-hmm. people probably pointed out in the theater. I had a little bit of a Leo DiCaprio moment, like pointing at the screen when we saw <laughs> Oliver narrating back and forth. Uh, and so during his time at Oxford, we kind of watch Oliver gaze from his window and obsess over a character named Felix, played really well by Jacob Elordi, who everyone seems to be submissive to his character and they love him quite a bit. And also maybe the real life Jacob Elordi and he's played really charmingly, but also in a clearly privileged way. And he kind of reeks of this facade of nice guy Mm -hmm. and Oliver sort of becomes a really 
smartly written Twitter fan page personified. And he kind of wants to co-opt the Felix vibe, which again, I thought was pretty clever from Fennell because there are a ton of Jacob Elordi fan pages, I'm sure, yeah. all over social media. And so I thought that was pretty smart. And so Oliver, one day biking home from class, sees Felix near the road with a broken down bike. Oliver sees his chance and kind of loans his bicycle to Felix. And Felix is playing this power dynamic of being like, you don't mind like biking my bike, my broken bike back to my dorm, right? Like, I think he even calls him Ollie at one point. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like this interesting dynamic between the both of them. Well, instead of like seeing his chance, we obviously like later learn that he, uh, you know, uh, created, that, yeah. which was hilarious. I thought it was intentionally supposed to be funny at the yeah. end of the movie, uh, but we'll get to it. And then Oliver later on meets Felix's best friend, Farley played by Archie Medeque. I think it's Medeque. I apologize if it isn't who Kelsey, you know, that actor as the English boyfriend from that couple midsummer. Oh, at the yeah. beginning of Midsummer. Okay, yeah. Who was, I think, the original couple who was killed in that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Farley is Felix's cousin who's dependent on the charity of Felix's family and sees Oliver as kind of a rival throughout the film. And Felix, interestingly, is written as a character who is seemingly kind, but he's also using Farley and Oliver as like pieces of clothing, basically, to make him appear as not that bad of a guy. Like, yeah, not a racist, not a classist. Yeah, they're like pieces of his identity um, yeah. that are like treated as like material, like parts of his identity. Exactly. Yeah. And so Felix sort of pities or fake pities Oliver over class differences and sort of treats him like a charity case. And after Oliver tells Felix that he lost his father to drugs in a scene again, where you're kind of like, did this happen? I'm like, not quite sure this happened. And then Oliver also tells Felix that his mother is an addict too. Felix goes like a bit further with his do-gooder vibe Mm -hmm. by inviting Oliver to his family's country estate Saltburn, which is like a very gothic British country house. And at Saltburn, we're introduced to Felix's family. And his father is played by Richard E. Grant. His mother is played by Rosamund Pike. Yeah. And his sister, Venetia, is played by Allison Oliver, which I, who I was not familiar with, who is quite She's good great. in this. Yeah. And Paul Reese as Duncan the butler, who I thought was incredible. Also in Napoleon. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. right. Wow. Mm-hmm. Big big uh kind of november for him yeah <laughs> and the incredible carrie mulligan who kelsey and i and then somebody else in the front row yeah, at our screening like, made it like we person. were audible <laughs> making a gasp when we saw carrie mulligan <laughs> as poor dear poor dear pamela which is like a hilarious character a tragic yeah. character but carrie mulligan was so great in yeah. this role her and uh rosin pike is like energy mm-hmm. uh with, with the, or their chemistry and their they performances were having a lot of fun. so great yeah yeah and we get this incredible uh, tour anything for attention <laughs> and i mean it's just there's so many quotable things from poor dear pamela also just poor dear pamela as a character name fantastic yeah uh and we get this incredible tour of uh saltburn that feels like a mtv cribs parody yeah in moments where felix is like showing us like the audience around the house but the camera's positioning him in such a way like the the way the spacing is in the scene and the blocking is like are they making fun of mtv cribs right now it was pretty hilarious and uh we kind of get all of like an architectural digest now an ad thing now yeah for sure and we uh, hear Oliver or we see Oliver overhearing Felix and his family kind of talking about Oliver's family issues and his finances. And they love this idea of looking at Oliver and poor dear Pamela as charity to make themselves feel better about this mm-hmm. class. So we're really getting this basic, you know, eat the rich commentary, like this terrible satire on the wealthy. And I think that's what a lot of people are commenting on that. This is nothing new. This movie has nothing to say. Yeah, but it's not necessarily like about 
eat the rich. Like it's about right. the um like rationalizing like wealth, right? right? Inequality. And being attracted to power, which we'll get into. But I and we'll also get into the twist later in this episode, but right around the beginning of the third act, I think anyone who was skeptical of Oliver's whole vibe was correct because he spends the last 45 minutes of this film manipulating this family. Uh, especially Farley and Venetia and like really like intimate moments while seemingly trying to get like Felix to love him at the same time. Mm -hmm. But by the end of the film, we like know he doesn't want Felix specifically, which I think is another thing that's been mischaracterized by critics. It seems Oliver, like what you were just saying, wants Felix's power. He wants, yeah, Saltburn and like what yeah. Saltburn represents and like this yeah. desire and, and stat well status status. Yeah. And I think Oliver you know, inevitably like has this family in one way or another killed just sort of, and then actually ends up killing a character. Like Oliver succeeds in a very disturbing Roseman well, Pike scene. Two people. I guess you're right. Yeah. 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 We just never see, we don't get the Felix moment, but, uh, we do or get the, the Venetia moment. Yeah. I guess that's a little bit more complicated because I think he, I don't know. We'll get to that, but Oliver ends the film as like a 30 something bachelor. Cause we have a huge time jump dancing naked around Saltburn yeah. <laughs> to murder on the dance floor, which was really smart and like a really epic iconic ending, but based on negative reactions, I guess nobody liked this ending, but yeah. I was laughing out loud. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. I thought it was awesome from Barry Keoghan and I thought the cinematography was really cool at yeah. the very least. I thought it was a lot of fun. It was like, yeah, it, I mean, even if it was like really designed, I love yeah. that. I thought it was like fun. I thought it was within the tone of the movie. Like it wasn't mm -hmm. anything like extra. Like I've heard a lot of people talk about this and other parts of the movie, but like, you know, again, it was like in intentionally shocking. I genuinely thought it was like, here's like the message and like Barry Keoghan's character, like one. Right. And yeah. And it, it was just supposed to be like, and it's supposed to be elevated. Yeah. Like dark, like funny. Yeah. yeah. Just like kind of, again, like bringing home the point more so. Emerald Fennell had a really funny quote uh, about her criticism or backlash to her two movies. And she was like, nobody like questions John Wick for murdering thousands of people because they killed his dog. Well, that was actually, that was two promising young woman. Oh, you're right. Um, yeah. Because she was like talking about how like everyone was picking apart the Carrie Mulligan's character in terms of like, uh, her intentions for revenge. And she was like talking about just like how John wick is heightened. Like, mm -hmm. so is this movie, except I'm actually like saying something where John wick, you know, doesn't need to say anything like we love John wick, sure. but, um, but yeah, that's a, more so what she was focusing on. But I mean, it makes sense if she brought it up in, it was a, it was a salt burn episode. For, that, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it makes sense in terms of like maybe the under reading for this. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is fascinating. The kind of opposite. Like treating it like a, a John Wick. Like she was just going for plot of right. him murdering this whole family. Yeah. Outside of plot protein, I think technically, uh, we don't, I don't know if we've really brought this up, but this film is beautifully shot. Like the cinematographer, yeah. Lena Sangren, who is Damien Chazelle's cinematographer on his last three films is excellent and this movie is shot in a very classic and thematically relevant i think one three three one aspect ratio yeah where you it's can, like stunning yeah it looks really good and it, you can see the heights of Saltburn, like the actual mansion uh really well and you can see all the paintings on the wall and you can see like there was a chandelier at one point where there was like old underwear on it from like a party that you like when uh was that all, during the birthday party? it's when oliver was first introduced to like the Saltburn mansion and oh, he, before yeah. he gets to kind of walk around by felix and i thought that was like a funny touch into the film I just thought it was like a really cool aspect ratio. You don't see it a lot anymore. It's obviously a very traditional one, but 
We also have Fennell's editor, who's she's worked on now. I think this is her second film, but Victoria Boydell, who had this really impressive, I thought, like shock comic timing editing. And I think the editing and cinematography deserve like a lot of credit for capturing the comedy intention of the film. Or even like when two people are just whispering to each other, it almost feels visceral in the way it's cut. Mm -hmm. I think it's just really well crafted and it's not getting a lot of love for that. And obviously, I think there's a lot of ton of like a ton of visuals that are really nice in the movie. Like there are certain frames that feel like paintings, especially yeah. just with the characters sitting in the grass. Yeah. Or like on top of the Saltburn mansion. Or like by the the lake. That one yes. uh shot where they like did kind of a mirror, right? Uh-huh. With um not where he not when he's looking in the mirror, but like the kind of lake, right? Or pond, whatever it is, body of water. Yeah, yeah. And Barry Keoghan, um, kind of like having a reflected, uh, mirrored, like upside down mm-hmm. image. That was really cool. I also liked the all the maze shots just because of the Harry Potter influence, like the Goblet <laughs> of Fire. Yeah. And then also like The Shining being a big influence. Like that's one of Emerald Fennell's favorite films. And yeah. Obviously, she loves Harry Potter too, which is. I definitely thought when we saw that maze though, because I had heard that she like, in in one of her, I think letterbox interviews, she was talking about how the shining, you know, she loves it. And I mm-hmm. think that was like definitely an homage to, to the oh, shining, yeah. but I, I thought there was going to be more with it. I thought so too. I was a little let down by that. I thought there was gonna be more about the maze. Yeah. Um, it was really well made. I thought that was cool. Like the maze, it was a cool visual. They actually hired sure. like a somebody who makes mazes to make that maze, which <laughs> which <laughs> that was really cool. It's a good use of budget. Like if you're gonna do like if you're who gonna have a big budget, she got a professional professional maze maker to huh. do that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but I thought it was cool. That's why I wish we would have got more of it. Um, and I think I think the most impressive technical scene was when Felix showed Oliver and the audience around Saltburn. Even though I've already brought it up, I think that was the coolest scene. I was just, I really wanted to rewatch that scene after we were done with it. Like mm-hmm. when Jacob Elordi is walking us around and he's like pointing to the bed that Henry VIII slept in, or he's like, this is the blue room. It's blue. Like they're just really funny moments <laughs> like that, that I enjoy with some great camera work. Uh, should we talk characters and performances before we get to like the negative reaction that I kind of hinted at, at the top? You sure. Want, you want yeah. to talk about Barry Keoghan? Uh yeah. I so I thought um he was like good. Um Yeah. I I think like I Was it the best performance of the movie? I I love Rosamund Pike's okay. character. Yeah, she's and great. performance in this. Yeah. But I think like the way that he I think he's doing something like subtle, right? Like Barry Keoghan is great. Like in Banshees, mm-hmm. um, killing of a sacred deer. Yeah. Like Dunkirk. that's our new Joker. Like that's crazy. Maybe Wild. I guess if they're still going in that direction, he's got the one film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's got the one. Uh, we liked him in American animals. Yeah. So I, I think there is something, um, really like dark about, uh, Barry Keoghan's performance always. Mm-hmm. And so what he's able to do and kind of like sitting quietly and letting this family bounce off yeah. uh, of him. Right. And, and them being able to like paint this picture that makes them feel more comfortable, yes. uh, is really well done and like understated and something that I think is like a power, of his acting. So I think he's always great. Yeah. There's something enigmatic about his face. Like he's just puzzling to look at. Mm-hmm. And I think you might've said it when we walked out, but like, you don't think of him as like an, uh, a traditionally attractive person. Mm-hmm. But when you stare at his face long enough, you're like, this guy is like really good looking. And yeah. I can't really, I can't tell exactly why, but there was something about his, like, I don't know. There was something about how detached he was and acting like he was dumb, but like actually up to no good. That was kind of appealing. Yeah. That I liked quite a bit. And I think, uh, 
I also like this idea of him trying to always convey these these reactionary moments like he's he's mostly reacting to other characters i love what you just said like other the family's bouncing off of him it reminded me a lot of killing of the sacred deer where which Kyo- i haven't seen yeah so yorgos lanthimos is uh one of his best films kyogen is like in that film communicating a lot of the times mainly physically and in a really thrilling and sometimes gross way and i think that's kind of similar to Saltburn. he's a really mesmerizing performer so i was really happy with what he did i think I think he's not going to get enough love. I don't think it's anything like the Matt Damon performance in Talented Mr. Ripley, which well, a lot of people s- are comparing it yeah, to. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I feel like if people went in, there was so much press about this being a Talented Mr. Ripley movie. Right. Um, if you were going in expecting, like, Matt Damon is really, like, charismatic. That's one of his that. best like, performances. He's re- yeah. And he's really, like, um, like kind of slimy mm-hmm. and, like, annoyingly, right? Like... Um, Always present. Yeah, exactly. Always like, chiming in. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can be a real pain. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that was good. You can be boring. That was um, so cutting. So we rewatched cutting. it again a week or two ago. Yeah. That was, like, uh, an instant... Like, we hadn't seen that in years, and I was like, wow, this is a masterpiece. Like, this yeah. is a great You know film. what? That... Uh, that imitation sounded great to me. And probably if I listen back to it, it'll sound really wild. You should listen back um, to it. Don't listen back to it. <laughs> I thought it was good, but don't listen back to okay. it. Okay. But anyway, so I think that if people were going in like thinking, okay, we're going to have like a talented Mr. Ripley. Mm-hmm. We got like the Dickie character in Felix and Jacob Lordy. Yeah. Right. Uh, but we were getting something, I think, which is like a little bit more realistic in Oliver quick. Like it wasn't yeah. as, um, I don't think Emerald Fennell wrote him to be like a talented Mr. Ripley. Like it wasn't necessarily his presence that was tricking the family. Yeah. Right? It was the family wanting to like uh, act like they are like, you know, charitable, mm-hmm. uh, create their identity exactly off of like helping someone, no matter it could be Oliver or like the next Harley. summer's guy. Yeah. Right. Who, who Felix brings home. So like, it, he's a little bit more realistic and like understated, which like I think that it is a good like choice from a writing perspective, right? Like because we've already seen talented R- Mr. Ripley, and yeah. again, this is making a different point, which we'll get to in a second. But um, when Felix uh, says like you make my blood run cold, I wouldn't say that Oliver Quick makes my blood run cold in the movie, like, like maybe Matt Damon's character does, mm-hmm. like because I feel like Matt Damon's character is like capable of like of anything to keep his status where Oliver quick feels more so like he just makes me feel uncomfortable and like, yeah, you know what I mean? He makes me feel like kind of like squirmy. I think think that's what Fennell was hoping for, but she does rely a lot on Keoghan to, uh, to, to really nail that performance. Yeah. There's not a lot in the text for him. It doesn't feel like it. Yeah. So, but, but I do think that like, it's important because she wasn't writing him to be like Matt Damon's character in talented Mr. Ripley, which it seems like people might be like, comparing or wanting and and just because like we have that scene of him you know um trying to insert himself like into the family right by like talking to like rosamund pike's character or something Mm -hmm. which is like they have really great chemistry too yeah um just because she has like great lines uh but also like with venetia right like just because he is like trying to like become a basically he just wants to be a lasting part of Saltburn, mm-hmm. right? Um, and wants their, to like exist in its history. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but, but that doesn't mean that he's like charming. Right. So, yeah. Well, that's why the character I kept thinking of or the actor was Edward Norton. 
actually. Yeah. As somebody who comp. is a little bit yeah. more vibrating underneath the surface, yeah. but never really giving you too much in the dialogue. And somebody else who's really great He's at like that. irritating in the same way. Yeah, he you're kind of pissed that, yeah. looking at him a little bit, <laughs> but also kind of interested in his face. Yeah. And that, you know who else reminds me of that, but obviously is like gorgeous as Heath Ledger. Like he has that same kind of energy. Yeah, that he has a little bit more, a volatility. more charm. Like usually yeah. in the roles that are written for him. Yeah. You know who I kept thinking of when watching Barry Keoghan was uh, Timothy Chalamet. I think it might be because uh, Jacob Elordi made a joke that Emerald Fennell tried to cast Timothy Chalamet in the Oliver role because she was really trying to play into this idea that the fan pages on okay. the hot men, the young men of Hollywood. And because she's making a comment on, like, again, the middle class trying to obtain something yeah. that, that is toxic. And so we'll, we'll get to that theme. But what I was could, interesting I is like, I love Timmy. We all know, uh, we love long time listeners, but I Very could never pro. see well, it. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Chalamet, I feel like tries to do stuff like this, but he really, it, it's not his bag. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I think the best things he can do are more subtle. Like what he did in Luca Guanino's most recent film. Um, let's yeah. talk about Rosamund Pike. Cause you just said that was your favorite performance. I think now I'm like second guessing my Rosamund. Is, is it, it Rosamund? Ros- okay. I don't know. Now I feel so I apologize. Yeah. I apologize, Spike. Okay, but she has like a comedic sensibility in this movie that I loved. And so I, I love that take that she's the best performance. She's most familiar, I guess, most known for famously. And what I'm familiar with her the most in is Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. And I like that Fennell located what makes Pike singular, which is that she has these Sigourney Weaver or Charlize Theron elements to her performances that are slick and commanding. Yeah. And she's a presence. Fennell lets her parody that kind of woman in this movie and lets her kind of almost, it almost feels like Pike is about to break into a wide grin in her scenes. Like (laughs) she's like never fully, it feels like a bit, but in a really funny way, she's like a really special actor. There's not many actors who, who can have that knowingness to their performance. And I think she really Dale, like kind of really nails that daft reactionary matriarch role. Is her character El- Elsbeth? Elizabeth? Something Elsbeth? like that. Yeah. Elsbeth, yeah. So yeah, I, I really liked her. I think it's a good take that she had the best performance. What? Who did you think? I think it's Barry Keoghan. Okay. I was going to say it at the end when we get to kind of like the, the twist at the end of the movie, but like I think that dance scene is going to live rent-free in my mind. I think it's like an iconic scene. I think yeah. it's so funny. It's awesome. I also think what we have not talked about a lot is this unreliable narrator thing. The idea that Oliver read 50 books in a summer or the idea that Oliver is well endowed, like those all seem like jokes to me, like a part of the unreliable narrator bits, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know if they're like unreliable narrator, but I think they're like, like they're a part of this like heightened like world that they're yeah. in. I mean, it, it it is like grounded where they are, but yeah. it's like definitely feels like we're like in this like storybook yeah in his head a little bit yeah that's what i that's what i mean by that like even his whole like plan that he's thought up i think like pike seems like the only character we see him kill and it makes you think like well so i like disagree with the whole like plan i don't think that he has a plan okay like i think that people keep talking about it um like barry keoghan went to saltburn to kill all these people to take their home. Yeah. I think it's more so like a talented Mr. Ripley where like he just wants to be near the sun and like, he, yes, like he, it's what he like values. Like we'll obviously talk about when he goes to back to his house, which makes it very ironic, but like he wants to be near this wealth and this status. Um, and the funny thing is he loses at the end because he's kicked out and then he doesn't like actually get back in for 15 years. Well, yeah, but I, I think that like basically he, 
kills Jacob Lordy's character out of necessity mm-hmm. to stay there. Yeah. And then from there, he realizes like I could actually, I could actually be like a permanent part of this. Like everything is kind of like working. I don't think he like maps out. That's the take everything. I think that it's, uh, I can understand why people are like, uh, getting there or maybe I don't, I mean, you know, this is just my take, but I can understand why, why people are like saying that because at the end we're showed like these calculated moves Mm -hmm. of him, you know, not having money at the bar, um, popping the tire to make sure that him and Felix had like a meeting. Right. So like I, those part, that that was a plan to get close to Felix. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he went into Saltburn planning to kill the whole family. Yeah, I think that's the right take. I didn't think about it like that because, but that gives more, I guess, credibility to why the ending is supposed to be so funny that he's like creating this narrative in his head that he like planned out all these, <laughs> these ways to get into this house and like killed all these characters off. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons why the butler Duncan hates uh, Oliver so much because he, I think he can kind of tell mm-hmm. what he's doing because Duncan is like a part of this, a part of Saltburn basically. So he can like see it right away as soon as he yeah. like lets him in. Uh, do you want to talk about Jacob Lordy? Did I you, do. This is the first time we've really seen him in this, anything this Yeah, big. so I haven't seen Priscilla. You didn't see it, right? No, I haven't okay. yet. Um, I, I want to though. Mm-hmm. And I never watched Euphoria. Um, and I've seen a I, few episodes. Yeah, I guess, well, I did see like, I think I, I've seen like parts of a few and I saw the first episode but now I just like forget it was so long ago it was a long time ago yeah. but um I don't know I for some reason I have like been like adverse to Jacob Lordy like I I think too tall too hot too tall and way too attractive we need less of them um (laughs) I I don't know why like I, I I didn't think he was like a bad actor I just like yeah. kind of wasn't into the idea of like making someone a star because they're hot. I mean, yeah. why am I against that idea? Like I love Brad Pitt. Well, he was like- <laughs> also a Netflix star, right? He had the kissing okay. booth movies. Remember that? Like yeah. we, we did, I think we might've saw the first kissing booth film. So I maybe, don't know, so but- maybe it feels like sort of like a, a feeling I would have by seeing like a Disney star or something. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like I, this kind of like weird aversion of which is not fair necessarily, but right. anyway, um, I think all the hype around Jacob Elordi has always made me be like, I don't know if I'm like, I'm just not like interested. It's also hilarious because yeah. the point of the film, like yeah. <laughs> all the hype around Jacob Elordi is the comment that Emerald Fennell's making yeah. that people are missing. Um, but I thought it was great. Yeah. I was surprised at how good he was. Yeah. I was like, I'm not buying that much stock, but I'll buy low. Like this, yeah. like I'm happy for him when that Paul Schrader movie comes out, maybe he'll drop a little bit and I can get in. Like that's, yeah, it's just tough because I feel like, you know, uh, unfortunately, and maybe he has like way more acting chops than I'm giving him credit for, but it seems like he keeps being cast as like hot guy, unattainable. Yeah. Like he could play like rich, you know, obviously in this movie, like a like, beautiful doofus. Kind uh, of yeah. Thing. He has like that down. A- elite, like his skin looks so clear, whoever, you know, whatever his, his skincare routine yeah. is like, um, but, but I think like, <laughs> 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 you couldn't keep a straight face after I was laughing because I was it was, well, I was looking at I was looking at um like different skincare stuff for um for Cyber Monday. Should we email his publicist? Yeah. <laughs> can you please tell me? We don't want to interview him, but can you <laughs> Yeah send us um, the skin routine please? Going into my thirties, I need um uh, some going some into our thirties. Jacob Alordi yeah. elixir. Okay, anyway, sorry. He he does. What play, was I even saying? Oh we yeah, were okay, he so, doesn't. He doesn't titled very well. He's very knowing about his charm. Yeah, and but good I'm, looks. I'm just saying, like, 
is that going to run out in terms of like casting? Does that make sense? Like, no, it's no, not. No, I don't no. think so. Hot not for will men. Always be a thing. Not for men. I think he's going to have movies. He's going to have scripts for the rest of his life. He's good. But I'm. But I mean, like, as far as like, I, I thought he was actually like really great in this. Okay. Like, well, okay. I think he's great if he's playing a similar role. Like, if he's typecasted, does that make sense? Which won't yeah. necessarily be his fault. I'm just saying, like, will that become something that he gets kind of stuck in? Well, I hope he gets like. I hope he goes more Soderbergh and less Schrader. Like, I yeah. hope he goes somebody yeah. who's more knowing. and kind of funny but in like a pushy way like i i would love an oceans for someone like him that's why brad pitt pivoted because he was like i need to play into like my good looks and make myself a little bit of a scumbag yeah <laughs> like how do i do that and brad pitt spent his whole entire career trying to figure out how to play more of a scumbag and matt damon has spent his whole entire career trying to not play an everyman unless it's like funny or convenient yeah um so i think he's gonna have to do something similar but yeah i thought he was very good Rest of the cast, Richard E. Grant uh, doesn't get a lot to do, but I thought he was funny enough as like this rich father. Allison Oliver, who we already mentioned as Venetia, mm-hmm. I think that's how you say her name, is pretty fantastic. I thought that was like probably the second most challenging role in this movie because she has like a very complex character yeah. that I think Fennell is maybe the most sympathetic with in terms of this whole family. If you're going to choose, if you're going to even read it like that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's difficult because like all the characters are playing like stunted, right? So yes. it's like, yeah, di- it, it's difficult because they're playing within an elevated like space and right. yeah, it, they're it, supposed to be like 20 or something. Roles, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then I think Archie Medeque, again, I hope that's how you say his last name. I apologize. I think he is given the most challenging role because he has to play this, a develop like an actually like nuanced character who is playing this kind of I'm sexy and I know it facade while also being like a fragile person underneath because of being ostracized mm-hmm. by this and wealthy because of, family like, the financial insecurity like to his right. family yeah and like kind of being well and being an outsider to the family because of his nationality and because of his race and so I think Emerald Fennell using his character in that way was smart in relation to Felix but I don't think the individual character is developed enough considering yeah. how much that you know the actor has on its plate. So I'm interested to watch that character again on rewatch, but I thought he did a good job. And then for Carrie Mulligan, poor dear Pamela, like we said, kind of stole the show. And even though it's yeah. a campy woman <laughs> and like uh, maybe a stereotype of a woman, it's like in poverty and like has real life tragedies. And the idea that she's being rented by this family really comes through. And I think you're right on by saying Mulligan and Pike have just this great comedic timing together. So I thought she was fantastic. And then the Butler, obviously Duncan Paul Reese, I thought was phenomenal and him being like this extension of Saltburn's history I thought was really smart too let's mm-hmm. talk about the well twist. you need someone at the end to like give a knowing glance right like at, yes at the last funeral I think he like he understands yeah what's happening there's also like, a character yeah. watching Oliver from afar and it looks like it's the butler when when Oliver is going and he's doing his grave business and there's like somebody in the back you really? can see watching yeah, right before he does it, and it looks like it's the butler. Are you sure? Well, I was like, who is that in the back before? Yes, I'm pretty sure. Okay. I mean, I've only seen it once. Well, Somebody can I, let us know. I was try- I feel like, but I could be misremembering because it's been a couple of weeks since we've seen it, but I feel like I was kind of looking around like, is anyone watching him right now? Well, so not when he goes down on the grave, but right when we see him before we know the, all the plans, when we see him at the funeral and he's just staring at the grave. Oh, yeah. No, that I think that's that there is, is someone Duncan. staring at him. And so I thought that maybe that they were trying to connect that. I don't know. Uh, I want to get to the twist. Okay. Okay. Oliver 
twist. Do you think that was purposeful? (laughs) (laughs) It had to be, right? Uh, So the middle class commentary, I think, was the best twist. Uh, We've already touched on it, but I was so delighted and kind of cringed when Felix said he was going to take Oliver to see his mom for his birthday. We both kind of grabbed each other's arms because we sort of figured probably there would be a weird reveal, but not exactly like this for me personally. It was Mm -hmm. kind of hard to watch as they pull up to like the nice (laughs) suburban upper middle class like single family home. I was kind of shocked a bit by this screenplay choice when they actually walked up to the front door because you're making this character pose as a working class person, but then you're actually presenting them as an audience member, like an upper middle class person who just wants to be close to power or status. And I thought that was pretty pushing. And I think that's been one of the reasons why the reaction has been so harsh. And honestly, that's the kind of provoking that we've been, you know, I guess saying why we like Fennel so much. All podcast is like, of course, the film is interested in satirizing this aristocratic Felix family, but the film doesn't really sympathize with Felix or his family. Like, like Fennel yeah. has talked about this family being this idle rich, and it's a very obvious like commentary on them, like uh, being this toxic uh, product of of wealth inequality. But Fennel is using that like obvious privilege of that family to explore the kind of absurdities of the class system in different ways, which is why I think this movie is in that special tier of class commentaries. Yeah. And I have heard her say uh, something like, uh, cause she's been asked specifically about the family. Like, are we supposed to hate them? Yeah. And her responses have been like, no, you're, you can like, like love them. And like in, I think she's like talking about this, like this, like this is like daft, like joking way. Does sure. that make sense? Like, yeah. um, you can see them as people is what more so is uh, what I interpreted her response to be. Yeah. Um, you can see them as people and see their flaws like very clearly. And I think that's like what she is playing with. Yes. Is that like, it's not, so it's not eat the rich, right? It's not necessarily like purge or yeah. like here are like these evil people. It's like, these are people. And like, because of their class status mm-hmm. are able to like put blinders up for certain things are able to do the bare minimum to mm-hmm. basically look like they are good people right? Great and want narratives. to rationalize that for themselves. Right. Um, it, and so like, it's not necessarily an eat the rich. No. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and they're played to like, obviously very like comedic bits to show like kind of the absurdity of their wealth yes. and, and, and how they make sense of it and how they're moving throughout the world and treating other people right. as like pets, like poor dear Pamela is basically like, um, you know, Barry Keoghan's character for the mom, right. For right. Pike. So, okay. So it's not eat the rich and what it, is though is it's more so like what Trey you were saying I just want to make sure I'm like it's clear to listeners because I have I literally haven't heard it like anywhere else people have just been saying it's not about anything right um it's about that that turn so the turn is not that he it that he killed the whole family right to live at Saltburn right the turn is that Barry Keoghan is an upper middle him. class yeah and his parents <laughs> make him meals and like right. again we don't know that he has like a perfect life we don't know, yeah. but it is yeah. obviously like in the text that he has a very comfortable life and he has parents who like do like at least love him. Right. right? Or, or whatever. Right. They're like supportive. Right? right. And, and so that is the twist. Like, and that is not what's being talked about. And the reason that that's interesting, uh, because I, I like, don't know if this has been said, but the reason that's interesting is because like, if we look at this side by side with talented Mr. Ripley, right. Mm-hmm. 
talented Mr. Ripley is positioned as a story about like Matt Damon's character, Ripley, who is working class and doing a bunch of like, um, jobs, right. right. Surviving like to on tips. Right. Yeah. Um, and he, he wants like out of this life and, and sees, uh, Dickie, right. Mm-hmm. Living this like extravagant lifestyle. Money is like not even a concern. Right. And he is able to kind of like shed, uh, any, any kind of like, worry mm-hmm. right with with working with like status or accountability yeah, that, like any, normal people he's have able to literally yeah. check out of like the system right, right. Of, the, of like work of of like yeah. any kind of structure or norms right? right and so like uh and he's also just like very charismatic mm-hmm. so matt damon's character though is seen more so in this like sociopathic Mm-hmm. Kind of like I will kill to be Dicky, right? He right. like becomes kind of literally obsessive becomes Dicky, yeah. Over Dicky, right? Okay, so that's what that is more so about that, and that's not necessarily an eat the rich movie, but it, no. it does have more eat the rich, the rich undertones. Sure. Um, the reason though that Saltburn is interesting and different from like any movie that we've seen in terms of like class in this like heightened genre, and it's different than Talented Mr. Ripley, is because. Barry Keoghan's character being upper middle class is like the interesting, hilarious part, right? Yeah. His idea that he like is not only like trying to convince the family that he is like, you know, either like in working class mm-hmm. or like comes from uh, a really like tough background, sure. like an environment, um, environmental circumstances. Like he already has a really comfortable life right. <laughs> in terms of status in terms of wealth yeah and and so like the idea that he wants you know the the like again to be closer to the sun of like ultimate status yeah ultimate wealth um she's making a comment on the idea of like again like upper middle class people um basically doing anything to maintain uh or or like elevate their status at the right. expense of other people. And that's why it's an interesting commentary. Sort of. I think that is where people get dicey about it. That expense part. I think that was all like, I agree with everything, but that expense part, I'm not even sure you think that because that this is what people have gotten frustrated with. They think that this movie is vilifying uh, the middle class and like people who are critics of this film think that this film is commenting on the middle class as being somehow evil for wanting the wealth that the wealthy have. And so I don't think it's at the expense. I think the movie is looking at like, more as Oliver as a system than an individual, which is why this is not a character study because there, she's really trying to do the satire on a specific branch of the middle class that you're talking about. But she wants this person like Oliver to appear as this like victim to wealth inequality and like being indoctrinated by like this capitalist dream, of like doing whatever you can to achieve this kind of power. And I don't think that Fennell's vilifying the middle class. I think that it's a comment about the reality of our economic system across cultures, which is that it forces you to use the tools of the oppressor to be financially independent and economically stable. And that's the, that's the literal theme of parasite, which is why nobody, I mean, people did leave parasite and were like, is this movie like commenting on the working class being evil or fucked up? And it's like, no, there it's about a larger system systemic issue that is like forcing people to act in these ways or operate with these tools. And I think Fennell has talked about how interested she was in like the audience's willingness to long for power. And I think that's right on, even if we know better, because these systems are like, we're forced to work within our, like a place to judge us and also make us feel ugly or boring. But we are also sort of left to be indoctrinated by wealth systems. 
Does that yeah. make sense? No, no. And so yeah. I think like Oliver being this character obsessed with Saltburn more than he is Felix is supposed to represent this contradiction of why the middle class hates and loves elites and aristocrats and monarchs and celebrities. And I think that love hate relationship is very real. Obviously, like in our culture, like the Kardashians or like how men are obsessed with athletes mm -hmm. or how the media is obsessed with celebrities and how most of the movie podcasts I listen to love or hate actor celebrities and wish that they were famous again, especially the white ones. And it's like cringe to listen to. Mm -hmm. And I think this movie is like such or like a, wish celebrity culture would come back was back. Yeah, just like the 80s films. And I think that th this movie is such an interesting uh, has such an interesting theme on making a, a, a film about class, but not about eating the rich, because obviously that would be not the point. But this is more revealing a question to a middle class who is like maybe a little privileged, just like many, many are in the Western culture. And I think this is more about like how they fall into this trap of like yeah. wanting to become the wealthy and stable. And that's why Oliver is left at the end of this film sort of being a victim in a weird way and like dancing around Saltburn as if he's achieved something. Huh. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I think when I meant like at the expense of everyone else like I mean it within the like idea of class like I mean it okay not in like I see not talking about individual greed or like individuals right like mm -hmm. um wanting power it's like stemming from the the idea of like being in a society where you're viewing other people like as competition right okay and kind of like rationalizing like the idea that like the want for for power or right. like if you even if you're like already comfortable right and that's what i mean so more like at, like systemically at the I see. expense i see um but but yeah like i i mean but it's that like, all works for you right like yeah. this commentary works yeah and okay. i don't and i'm not like i feel like right now we sound like we're trying to be like heady and like uh like this is interesting because we think the you know sure. the um message of the movie is interesting and heady. That's not it at all. I just think that the only reason that we're like, I think talking about it a little bit more in depth is because I do think that is like face value what the movie is saying. I mean, I think to not admit that the middle class has a privilege to like put our faces against the window of wealth and be like, do we want this and why? Why are we being pressured to want this wealth if it's turned so all of us so toxic? What is the cyclical nature of wealth inequality? And like, how does that persist. And I think that move like shows like Jesse Armstrong's Succession, mm -hmm. right, is a perfect example of a melodrama turned comedic satire on the audience's relationship to forgive and forget the ruthlessness of the Roys who are supposed to represent like this wealthy and elitist family. And I think Saltburn is kind of commenting like on this response to Roman Roy fan pages or Jacob Elordi fan pages. And in that way, I think it's a really smart movie because ultimately we're left with nothing but to like work our nine to fives and hopefully on Sunday succession comes back. Like that's like, and I think that, I think that kind of wanting to be close to the sun that you were talking about earlier is the major comment. Is it super profound? No, but it's like actually interesting because yeah. it's different yeah. than what we usually see. Yeah. And the reason that it's interesting and feels like timely, because like you said, it's not groundbreaking, right? Mm -hmm. Is it's not like a talented Mr. Ripley where it's like the obsession with Felix is what made Oliver Quick kill the whole family. It's like the obsession with the status and wealth and existing outside of the rules um, of kind of society yeah. is what is like enticing to Oliver. Like that's why he says I wasn't in love with him. Yeah. Like I loved him it's why we get all these like kind of confusing uh, love gestures from Oliver Quick's character. It's not the same thing as Mr. Ripley. Mm -hmm. um, it's wanting to like have the 
basically privileges that Felix has. And so, and, and like, um, Emerald Fennell is like kind of talking about the, the movie doesn't say this, but the reason why it's interesting and why it's like timely is because we have like celebrity culture in the form of like, she's talked a lot about like Instagram fame, you know, yeah. a lot of people wanting to like, um, basically create, uh, different revenues to, not have to work right. basically. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, well, that's obviously not bad. Like we're, you know, we're trying to like thing. do that with a podcast. Yeah. Right. But there is like, um, you know, the, the whole like trend of like basically like buying all this like real estate. Have you seen that? Like on TikTok or Ver- Gary Vanderchuk. Van- Vanderchuk. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Like, you got to like invest in like property and like work harder. Yeah. Create like our <laughs> basically right. Like a landlord economy, like instead yeah. of, instead of like thinking about how could we actually like change like work, <laughs> right. Or like, yeah, like more systemically yeah, yeah. people are interested in this idea of like being closer to the sun to create wealth to then exist outside the rules. It seems like, right. which is that's like something that she is like kind of locating. She's not necessarily yeah. like making that wide of a comment, but it's definitely connected. And that's why the movie's interesting. Well, what's crazy about it is it it's a comedy on that theme. Yeah. So t- trying to, if it was a melodrama on that theme and it was then like, I would, you know, if it was a, a law, like, a movie like lawyers or, whatever, or something, yeah. then it would be higher stakes, obviously. But this is, this goes, uh, I think far enough to be like yeah. a story that does a great job with those themes. And I, the killing of the family again, like I, I don't think it's like a plot. I think it's like a, basically like positioned as like Mm -hmm. a defense mechanism that Oliver like thinks he has to do to, to stay right. Like, right. It's like, it's kind of like supposed to be a, um, like materialized desire for this lifestyle. Salt burn is is like an idea as a metaphor. It's supposed to be desire. Like that seems like the clear metaphor, but ultimately like, Everything I just agree with everything you just said. I've I've loved this conversation because I think it's helped me finally feel comfortable that this movie is actually good because I felt like over the past few weeks listening to so many people that I appreciate in film criticism and also reading their work, I'm like, am I an idiot? Like, why do I like this movie? Am I not understanding something? It's being talked about so many different ways. Like the reason that I like I wouldn't think it's as interesting if it were a character study because then it would be more focused on like an individual greed and individual like yeah. idea of like basically like kind of like pointing fingers at you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. it's so again, like you said, like humorous, elevated, just mm-hmm. talking about something like like literally pinpointing something and then making a movie like an extended metaphor about it. And that and and also just like, you know, kind of fun (laughs) yeah it is fun it's a fun wild fantasy and like a grim fairy tale narrative and i really enjoyed being on the ride and i know where i'm going once we get into the second half and that's totally fine because i'm just having some fun and then we get to add what we're talking about which is this kind of like audience introspection about these like this kind of cyclical toxic nature of wealth inequality that obviously we're all aware of but it's interesting to see a movie kind of twist your expectations about who the satire is really on and then that kind of like obsession over power really coming through so I really like Saltburn a lot. I thought it was pretty great. And yeah, and how like people are complicit in upholding yes. right, like that yeah. that status quo. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought like I, I don't know. I love Emerald Fennell's like confidence of 
being unwilling to sacrifice her vision to appease the majority. We always love male filmmakers for that shit. We mm -hmm. go like, thank you, Christopher Nolan, she is for such not a, sacrificing your vision. She's such a fincher in that way. I mean, that's yeah. what I'm saying. She feels like a fincher. I said Tarantino too, but like I feel more fincher with what she's doing. Um, anyways, like I said, I wanted to bring up like kind of the lasting reactions to this film, maybe some adjectives. I've been talking about this whole podcast that like the average critic reaction seems pretty cold on this movie. I think there is like an overwhelming respect though, I think for Fennell's unquestionable style and like color palette, like her, her choices mm -hmm. in the movie stylistically that really pop. I think people seem to agree that there is something like very uh, like appealing about the way that she makes movies only mm -hmm. through two films. And I think many agree that she also has like a real feel knack for visual metaphors. Like those are really strong and also has a knack for discomfort. So I think critics seem to be like above and neutral on her as a talented filmmaker for the past three years. But in terms of her themes and commentaries, I think so many critics have said that she is making movies that feel like ads for like bad ideas mm -hmm. and bad intentions or to a lesser extent, maybe just like poorly conceived plots. And maybe, you know, I, again, I'm not going to name names, but some people I really respect have addressed her screenplays to fall short in their thin characterization and having like superficial commentaries. And I think that's that specific criticism about poor plots is almost in all of the reviews I've read about Saltburn mm. with that. It's a class satire, but many writers called her film like indulgent and in that her as a writer is, is constantly overcompensating and you just never read that kind of that language. Is yeah. And I think like Saltburn. I was like condescending a, a bunch, but that is really, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think looking at this movie as like edgelordy with like an ingenuine mm -hmm. screenplay is so convenient. And like in the relationships in the film being shock value and everything being forced in for shock value, like a TikTok movie or something, it's all like parody. And so like the idea that she's just doing an emphasis on provoking with no serious substance is so reductive. And even when critics like have complimented the film's vibrant, flashy visual palette, they still have like this like end note of being like, but the movie feels all for nothing and like a bit hollow or totally hollow or actually no theme really sticks. Like mm -hmm. those are actual quotes I got. And I think that's just the really easy stuff to read. There is like ruthless stuff about this movie where paid film critics like salary film critics have said the film is nasty obnoxious, mean-spirited, silly, cold, calculated, arch in a bad way, self-satisfied, unpleasantly transgressive, a bad aftertaste, feels like an ad more than a movie, thoughtless, superficial visuals, a mood board director. She's a style of a style over substance writer. Her films have nothing to say. Her movies are vapid and self-absorbed. And this is one of my wildest criticisms I found which is what we've been talking about. But this is a quote. Saltburn is a cautionary tale for the wealthy to not trust the working class. <laughs> that just like doesn't make sense. What? I've seen that. I've seen that too from like, I, like I'm not, I guess it sounds because I'm like wild. laughing. I'm not trying to like, yeah. you know, but, but that's like a really wild take. Yeah. I just don't even know how to, did we watch the same movie? Like, and also, uh, I don't know. She, she also like one, it's not in the text at all that it's a wealthy, it's a story for wealthy people. You know, peop, it's a literally to, like, go to sleep like, at satirical, night. Yeah. like it's so confusing. I can understand. Although obviously those were like all like, so like ridiculously like rude, but I can understand yeah. for people saying like, st like feeling style over substance. If you don't 
enjoy some of the more sure. elevated things, right? Um, so I, I can get some of some of that. Um, if that's how you feel about other movies in a similar like vein, but uh, again, like uh, basically what you said, like the lack of just like thought, I've heard a lot of people call it like dumb, which uh, people call, you know, uh, I've heard dumb male too, filmmakers, yeah. um, their, their movies dumb or whatever too, but, but not to this extent repeated like, and also a mood that board director. Yeah. Wild. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Obviously like very gender coded, but the mean spirited one is like so weird to me. It's like, yeah, what, there are so many movies that are just like, like talented. Mr. Ripley is like mean spirited. Then it's just like so weird. Um, yeah. I yeah, mean, the cautionary tale for the wealthy is the strangest. One that's to me. just incredible. I, I love that quote. Uh, I hope she gets a t-shirt that says that. Um, <laughs> I think if anything, people are annoyed like, about filmmakers holding up a magnifying glass to a middle class who like feel stuck. And I understand that. And I think it's fair to be frustrated at a filmmaker who is like in an exploitative industry already that is telling you that they are exposing you for like your transactional tendencies and your problematic desires. I think that's fair though. My response to those people again is David Fincher, the contrarian director who made fight club, like one of my favorite filmmakers who just made a movie called the killer, which is about the middle class being a bunch of sociopaths and like <laughs> used an emotionless assassin as a metaphor for the middle class's role in like destroying our world through consumerism and toxic nine to five corporate jobs. Like why is Emerald Fennell dealing with so much pushback when like, you know, David Fincher is leading I mean, the he's digital also, streaming to, revolution. To be clear though, he's not like, I don't think him or Emerald Fennell because we we are using some language that is like seemingly like the middle class is creating this right or like it sounds like I'm sorry people are I don't think that yeah but the films can be interpreted that way are creating yeah. this or like uh, but but I think they're more so like kind of touching on like what is reinforcing this does that make sense totally and I think well the killer does the same thing as Saltburn the killer at the end not to spoil or like how do we ra- how are we rationalizing something yes That's more so like what how do we rationalize on. like the kind of at the very least, the discomfort that we're causing yeah. to society. But like the killer meets his quote unquote boss at the end yeah. of the film, who is like this, you know, He's stock like, trader. Know. Yeah. <laughs> and he, they're really showing the killer as a symptom of this guy's greed. Like yeah. that's what they're doing at the end of that film. And they're doing something similar here with Saltburn. Anyways. Also, I love how we just talked about the killer, but we like, that's not even a spoiler. It's just funny. Yeah. Like there's, yeah. I, well, Actually, you're right. It's not really a spoiler at all. Not at all. It's yeah. hard movie to spoil. I feel like it's very straightforward. Yeah. I think we said it in our podcast, but like the re- the trailer tells you everything you need to know. Um, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did a good job. Yeah. And you know, what's hilarious. It's like you like this movie a little bit more than me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested to see how it will like stand up on rewatch. Me I think I, I'll still like it. Like yeah. I know that, but um, but once you like now know the, you know, quote unquote twist to like, mm-hmm. I wonder which parts if there might be like slow parts or something like that just with any other movie where you have something that is like a drop like a shock yeah um but it's hilarious because it's like i thought this movie was like really good i thought it was a fun time at the movies but like just even like again like you were saying the irony of just being on the side of liking it of Mm -hmm. like it being good you'd think that we're like the only um like you know a plus like five star right podcast out there with the just kind of like intense just tornado of wild things being said about this movie. I know. Anyway, so I want to give extra credit to Emerald Fennell. Um, My extra credit to Emerald Fennell too. For shooting her shot. Yeah. And I, I hope that she like 
continues to get budgets to like make unique movies that feel really bold. Yeah. I hope for our like millennial future possible auteurs that we just don't go above 30 million. That seems to be the mark. I like that kind of like mid tier budget place. It makes everybody comfortable. Uh, yeah, I'm giving extra credit to Fennell's screenplay. I think cause screw the haters. I think this is a good script. I think her commenting on her own like middle-class privilege is really all we ask of filmmakers. Like as the audience, we always ask filmmakers and critics too. please write from your experiences and like, don't try to like write about other experiences until you have really handle on what you're doing. Cause there's so much stakes with like movies there cause mm. they're so expensive and they they're so wide reaching and they actually have like a cultural impact. And so like we got promising young woman, which is like a tragic dark comedy from a woman's perspective. And we were like, no, thank you as a culture apparently. <laughs> and then we, except for the Oscar, but again, people still call that the pandemic Oscar. And then we get salt burn as this commentary on like, obscene wealth and materialism causing extreme obsessions with it written from an upper middle class person's perspective. And people are like, no, thank you. <laughs> like, what do, they, what do they want Emerald Fennell to make nothing? Like, I guess that's the takeaway. So I, I really like this script a lot. And I think people are trying to going into this movie, trying to intellectualize this text and psychologize Emerald Fennell as one of the great authors of our time, as if she's like a Scorsese, like I've said, like how he, how you brought up earlier, even Paul Schrader shitting on it. Like he made master gardener yeah. this year. Like what a joke that he's what a shitting literal, on this movie. Literal, like actually problematic movie. We're never going to talk about that film on yeah. this podcast. That's not, don't watch it. It's You're good. It's wild. Yeah. Um, I think it's sadly funny that kind of like film criticism has been monetized in such a way that everything needs to be reactionary so much so that people are saying that like Saltburn has no ideas. You know, and I think it's like, and I mean this nicely, like a B version of Parasite. So like, I, I really like this movie a lot. I didn't listen to what you said because I was just thinking about Paul Schrader because he made a movie that is sympathetic to white men. Uh. And he's saying <laughs> that this is a wealthy, like, uh, you don't understand. Tale this man is, is for has gone wealthy? through a tough life as a Nazi. Okay, Master Gardener, <laughs> insane plot. It, uh, uh, I, we're not getting into that. Yeah, yeah we can't. Um, anyways, I'm excited for what's next for Emerald Fennell. Hopefully, we'll get her on the pod. That'd be great. I want to take a break from interviews. To be honest, mm-hmm. I feel like we we've been so busy. We've been really yeah. busy. I think it'll be fun to have her on though. She's one of our best young genre filmmakers. She's got that pulpy, vibrant style that I really like, the memorable filmmaking energy in all of her films. Everything that we like about movies, about shifty character intentions and kind of subversive scripts. I just hope she keeps getting to make films, like you said. And yeah, that was the extra credits of Emerald Fennell's Saltburn and Promising Young Woman and her career. That was a fun pod. It was fun. We went through a lot. Yeah. I don't know what to title this one, honestly. (laughs) I don't know either. We're going to think of something clever. Uh, (laughs) Also, if you've gotten this far and you like what you hear, don't forget to follow our podcast on Spotify and Apple. Shoot us five stars if you don't mind. We're an independent show and we appreciate your support. Let us know what you like about our show in the Apple reviews. We'd appreciate that. Yeah. We're also covering some of our favorite movies from the best working filmmakers on our Patreon. We've already covered Wes Anderson, Martin Scorsese, David Fincher. And now we're going to take a look into Ridley Scott's filmography starting at the end of November with the episode on my favorite film of all time, Alien. And there will be 30 minute samples of those episodes on our main feed. But for just $5 a month, you can become a member of our Patreon, Living Plus. Speaking of succession, (laughs) if you sign up to be a Living Plus member, you'll get access to our full catalog of episodes. So we appreciate any support of our independent show. All right. Until next time, this has been Trey. And this is Kelsey. Peace. Bye. Uh.
I see why Felix likes you so much. You're so, um, real.